Hey everybody and welcome back to Motorcycles and Podcakes. I have got a legend in the house today. It is freaking pretty rad. I have met this person oh a couple times now and every time it has just been hysterical. It has been full of amazing conversation and once I started this podcast she was one of the very first people I was like yes you absolutely need to be on this podcast and weirdly enough she was like okay I could do that and uh, she's from up north where it snows 85,000 days of the year and um, I know her as super rad chick but y'all know her as Misty Hurst what's up chick Hello. Hello, everyone. I'm so impressed with your setup. It's so very official. Uh, well, thank you. I think. <laughs> no, I am Looks super. Great. Yeah, I'm super excited that you uh, you decided to come on here because you and I met April last year for the first time. And um, I remember we were at your sister's house eating um, hot dogs with chips and uh, we're sitting around a campfire and you and I just, we had a little bit of a conversation and my mind was going at 5,000 miles an hour as we talked because you're telling me everything about you and I'm like already thinking of starting this podcast and I was just like, oh my God, this would be amazing. And then the more I've got to know you and the more we've hung out in person, the more I'm just like, okay, this is one of the raddest people in the history of mankind. So I'm thrilled for you being here. So Thanks. Well, thank you. It's been uh, it's been a really fun adventure, and I've loved getting to know you and the crew. And um, yeah, it's been super fun. So I'm stoked. Super rad sauce. So this is basically uh, you know a long form little podcast here. We have an organic conversation, um, and I kind of have a little bit of a cookie cutter template, if you will. Right. So we usually like to kind of go back in time to little Misty, and uh, I know your sister too. And uh, that could be interesting right there. So why don't you uh, start off a little bit by just telling us a little bit about you and growing up and where you're from and all that kind of stuff, like pre-motorcycle. Oh, boy. Um, a little misty. Okay. How much can I talk about my sister? This will be really <laughs> fun. Um, okay. So little misty, I'm the oldest of three of us. Uh, there's myself, my brother, Steven in the middle and, uh, summer. Yeah. I am older. Thank you very much. Reminder. Yes. Summer loves that. Um, and what can I say? I don't know. I was just, uh, my mom says I came out running and I didn't stop. And that's, uh, sort of how it feels with my life. I just, I really enjoy movement. I like, well, I, maybe not enjoy movement all the time. I need it. It's necessary. I have to move. Uh, I did all sports growing up. Um, you name it. And I did every sport except dirt biking or motorcycling. Cause we didn't, my family didn't ride growing up. Um, but uh, on the team, volleyball, basketball, cross country, you know, my, my best Sport uh, was long distance running, cross country, and um, track and field, I think, was probably my best, but I did all of them. And just always really adventurous, willing to jump off the cliffs, willing to, you know, try whatever it was that people were trying. I skied from a young age. I started snowboarding. I swear I was one of the first women to ever get on a snowboard. My best friend, Erin, and I, at 14, 13, we're snowboarding way back when, and people would be shouting from the chairlifts, like, there's a chick, those are girls, <laughs> girls are snowboarding. <laughs> um, 
And she went off to be an Olympic athlete and we had some fun snowboard races, you know, way back when. And I was always sort of looking for, for my sport, you know, it was like, it was like, I loved so many of the sports and I was good at a lot of them, but nothing really felt like a hundred percent it until I got on a motorcycle. Oh man. Uh, Yeah. That's pretty cool. So that's, that's a lot of sports, you know, like I feel like I played a lot of sports with the basketball and the football. I ran a little bit of track and cross country. Well, just the more the distance things in, in the spring on track, I guess, like the 800 or whatever. But man, you really, really hit it down. I did a little bit of skiing, but I was never a uh, quote unquote knuckle dragger, you know, that what my friends like to uh, call themselves. Yeah, no, we were skiing, you know, like the, my brother, sister, and I were all very close in age. So my mom, you know, had three kids under three years old and we all started skiing at a very young age and we'd be bombing down the hill, three little, little tots, um, parents chasing us on the ski hill. And so, you know, skiing and then I also, I did gymnastics, um, funny little side story when I was really, really young, I did gymnastics and they pulled my parents aside. I don't know, I was like six years old or something. And they said, uh, we really want Misty to go into the competitive program. We want to like, you know, really encourage her gymnastics. We think she's got some great talent. And my mom was like, yeah, great. And then they were like, so she'll need to quit all the other sports. Mom was like, she's six years old. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, and I'm super thankful because I feel like if I had been pushed into that sort of box and only done that one sport, uh, I would have missed out on so much of the, uh, just the training and the, um, the learning that goes on when you're a young child, you're a sponge, you can absorb so much. And so being able to try gymnastics and diving and soccer and, you know, I think I even petitioned to have a girls football team at the school or to not, not a girls team, but to play with the boys. Yeah. Uh, Cause I wanted to do football. Um, it all, it all works together to grow not only your mind, but your body, like how you, how you are able to present yourself in the world. And then, and then how I was able to transform that into riding a motorcycle. I think really stemmed from all of the sports and that, that the athletics that I did uh, when I was a kid and fairly high level competition too. in in a lot of those sports. Um, Right. Yeah. My whole life was, was sports. (laughs) You know, I think that's one thing that um, unless you have played sports or been around them a lot, you don't really understand what kind of values that actually creates into a young person growing up you know the whether it's a team sport you know which I played a lot of and then my oldest son Justice I mean he was a team sport football basketball played at a very high level growing up all the way through through um through high school and then you know (laughs) I'm cleaning out his car one day and uh, he got a new car so we're gonna pass this one down to Braden our youngest and I'm cleaning out the trunk and he has all these letters stuffed between the wheel whale of like all these colleges that are interested in him coming to play basketball and football. And he was like, I don't want to. (laughs) What? 
I totally, it was like, what are you doing kid? But growing up and then coaching high school football for, you know, a decade or whatever. Um, one of the head coaches was always like, football is a life lesson one yard at a time. And I think that's really through all sports. You learn how to just kind of dig deep, that whole cliche. You learn how to, you know, share essentially, be a better teammate and builds character. Yeah. And then. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. so much. Yeah, my youngest. So son. much. All this, like every sport, every sport can give you something different, right? Which is yeah. why I. You know, I see the the way the world is going these days where they're pushing kids to specialize and they're, right. um, you know, we have a problem here with hockey where, you know, 20, 30 years ago, hockey used to be the winter sport. And then the kids would play other sports uh, in the summer, in the spring. And now there's a push to like, oh, well, we can't miss a season of hockey, they have to play hockey all year round. And so now you've got summer camps and spring camps and hockey, hockey, hockey. Right. And there, actually Wayne Gretzky wrote an, uh, an incredible article about the fact that what you're doing is you're taking away complementary sports, complementary skills, things that make hockey players better because they played soccer in the summer or they played a different sport, right? So yeah. yes, there's, there's the repetition of hockey and and hockey is the the skill or the sport, but you can improve your visuals if you play a different sport. You can um, learn different things. Your body reacts, and you just become a much more well-rounded person when you train. Uh, you know, cross train. Oh, absolutely. So it it it's something that I really take with my kids as well is trying to help them find what their passion is, but also encourage them to maintain multiple disciplines so that they benefit from all of the skills that they're getting. Um, I really think you just said it really well, the, the multiple skill set, you know, um, I think it just makes you more around. We, we, we don't have the hockey down in my area of the United States. You know, I think that's more Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin kind of thing for, for down here, but that's basketball for us. We have the AAU. It's year round. They travel and go all over, and that's what Justice did. And it was just on a traveling team, and it's just almost every day. And then every weekend, you're playing tournaments year round. And then the only time he would stop is right before daily doubles for football. And then all the kids would go to football. And <laughs> it was always really funny. The first basketball game back after football season, because in high school, especially the the team was pretty good, so they would go really deep in the playoffs or or win state. And uh, <laughs> first game back, they're trying to play basketball, be finesse. It's all the guys just used to hitting. They're coming out with forearm shivers and shoulder blocks and stuff, and it's just like everybody's fouling out. It's like, <laughs> welcome back, kids. Freaking rad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It also prevents you know burnout, right? Like you're yeah. starting to get kids. Mm -hmm. 15 years old being like, peace out. I'm done with this because they're exhausted. All they've done is play one thing over and over and over again. Right. Uh, so hundred yeah, percent. And I got the perfect example of that is uh Braden, my youngest son was cycling and he was doing something like, man, I think he was pushing, I mean, year round, but races somewhere around 80 races a year, 80 plus races a year. You know, and that's, that's between road 
criteriums, and time trials, right? So you have those three disciplines all within the cycling. <clears throat> and then he was doing somewhere around 80, give or take five, depending on the year. And then winter training, road riding all the time, always training in the wet and the heat and just whenever. Um, we went to a race in Central Oregon, and it was actually for the state championship. And uh, I remember standing at the finish line, and it was this long hill to the finish line. And we kept hearing on the radio that he was, I mean, three, four minutes ahead of everybody. And it was, like, awesome. It's like, oh, my gosh, like, this is his race. He's going to win that state championship or whatever. And I remember coming up the top of the hill, seeing him win the, the, you know, the, the race, and his hands are up. He's like, yeah, okay, I win. And got up there, got his – Got his jersey, his state championship jersey, and his medal and everything. And we got all the bikes on the car, and we're getting ready to head home. And he goes, I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, my legs are shot. My mind is shot. I'm done for a while. It's like, okay. You know? Wow. He knew. And that was his last race. And that was a while ago. So the burnout is real. Yeah. There, there's a balance for sure because I really do – I do respect and value – people that have found their their thing at a young age you know i i missed i missed my sport at a at a young age i think everything led me to get there but you know sometimes i do look back and think what what could i have done if i had started riding at a young age you know oh, yeah. i see my kids and how talented they are like my 14 year old kicked my ass now on a motorcycle because he started at three, four years old and has ridden. He's, he's got 10 years of motorcycle riding experience. Wow. Whereas, you know, I was 24 years old and then, you know, I went pro at 30. <laughs> like you're over the hill. It's, it's, it's too late. <laughs> oh my gosh. And that's something I'm actually really looking forward to getting into here in a little bit, you know, is, is the riding career. Um, with, with the sports, you know, you said you got summer and, I forget your brother's name. What is it? Steven. 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 Was there any kind of just uh, competition between everybody growing up playing sports? Like on the like for us, like, you know, it was basketball. We'd go out in the driveway and just, man, it was like the national championship every single time we're playing one-on-one, -on -one, you know? Uh, we never, like, we were just very, very different kids. And so, you know, my mom says I came out running and didn't stop. Whereas my brother was, you know, she could sit him in a corner and he would just sit in the corner. And then he's very meticulous. He's calm. He can, he's a great artist. He can paint, you know, he, he was sporty for sure, but we didn't, we didn't jive. We weren't, I was busy. I was like, I am out of the house at 6.30 in the morning. I don't come home until 9 p.m. Like, I was just, had no time for my brother and sister. <laughs> and, you know, Summer was doing her thing. She she did, you know, various sports growing up, but um, a little bit less and for sure had her friend group. And we just didn't, we just didn't really mingle as kids together. And And if there was competition, it wasn't between the three of us, I mean, I was just competitive as all hell against my own self and about everybody else I was going to beat. So it didn't matter about my brother and sister. Oh, I totally get that. I totally get that. I didn't, I have a, an older sister and she's five years older. So growing up, I mean, she was so 
far ahead. The only really cool thing about it is, you know, me being like 12, 13 years old, she had some really hot older friends. <laughs> that was pretty much the thing, you know. But um, it was basically like my dad and I. Like, I didn't beat my dad in one-on-one -on -one until I was like 16, you know, because he's Mr. Basketball, too. And then just everybody in the neighborhood would just come down. That was my competition growing up, but not too much with the family. Um, whatever, right? Just try to get try to get more gooder. So I, I remember a conversation we had at uh, Critter's Camp Out. It actually wasn't our conversation. I was just, like, listening to, I believe, you and, and Critter talking about, like, music and concerts you guys have been to. And I was just like, holy crap. A lot of the same stuff I was going to, you were going to, and a lot of the same bands and stuff. I was like, wait a minute. This is pretty rad. So I was I was a little surprised by that, to be honest with you. I don't know why, but I always kind of thought you were like a boots and pants and boots and pants and kind of girl. <laughs> oh, man, I've got some music. I got some things that'll surprise you. The sun is like blasting in my eyes. Is it bothersome on the no. screen? Or... No, it gives you a cool uh, lighting conflict on there. So it's all good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the music thing. So growing up, Growing up, even though I was super, super sporty and always did sports, there's a very introspective, deep, solitude-seeking side to me that a lot of people don't know or really understand. And I would lock myself in my room and I would sit at my super special desk that I found, an antique roll-down desk, and I would write. I would put candles on, I would play some, you know, music and I would write poetry and write letters and write random things. I would just sit at my desk and write. And music became such a, such a soothing way to get myself in the mood, right? It could, it could ramp me up. It could calm me down. I, I would often play brooding, sad, <laughs> heart-wrenching music and cry in my room as a 15-year-old girl or whatever. And it was it was very important to me, but it was also very, um, what's the word? Uh, not popular, uh, mainstream music, maybe, maybe not, because my mom, so I used to listen to uh, all the classics. So in the car, my mom was a big music person and influenced a lot of my early music. So, you know, Zeppelin and Queen, and we listened to Paul McCartney and um, I'm gonna lose all it now I'm being put on the spot. All the old classic <laughs> yeah. rocks, Dave Bo David Bowie. Um, we used to just rock out in my mom's car and sing all these songs. She would even come to the school sometimes at lunch and we would listen to the Pointer Sisters and dance around the car. And, and it was like in. super, super fun, but it was very mainstream music, yeah. right? And, and then when I was 16, uh, I met um, a person that would become like instrumental in my life. He was in grade 12. He's a dear friend of mine. We were uh, basically high school sweethearts and um, very, very different person who invited me into a world I had no idea existed. So he was interested in uh, 
in, you know, exploring the occult. Uh, he was sort of, you know, goth <laughs> in the goth realm. All this fascinating music that I had no idea, dark wave, industrial, ambient, occult music. Um, and and opened my eyes to this whole new world. So at 16, you know, his name was Ari. And at 16, he would pick me up in his red Nissan NX with the T-top. <laughs> and the license plate said vampire. And he would have these black driving gloves and a black leather jacket. And he would pick me up at high school, like the sporty girl who'd never had a boyfriend <laughs> until like 16. And it was such a bizarre, uh, I don't know, deviation from my regular life. My my friends thought he was a little like great, nice person, but like a little different, a little odd. He would make me these incredible mixtapes that I would put in my car. And my friends were just like, what is this shit we're listening to? Right. Like, what is it? And it was, you know, he he just brought me into, you know, The Cure, um, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, Frontline Assembly, Front Two for Two, um, Toil, uh, Tones on Tail, the Sisters of Mercy. I mean, you name it, and all of this musical influence came in. And at this time, he introduced me to the world of Dungeons and Dragons and Vampire the Masquerade. Okay, cool. So in the midst of me being super sporty, you know, grow up in Lions Bay, sort of drive your dad's Acura to school girl, I was also like sneaking out and playing Vampire the Masquerade until all hours of the evening and listening to this dark music and then driving home to Lions Bay, you know, in in the days where the road was like a single lane road, dark, no other cars. And I'd just been playing this <laughs> terrifying game of Vampire the Masquerade. Right. Now I have to drive home. Uh, and it just it, you know, we we used to go downtown. Like I never went downtown as as my sheltered little life. Right. And and then we would he would take me to this place, Benny's Bagels, and we would just have these intense, deep philosophical conversations about life and paranormal events and ghosts and and life after death. And um, did we believe in vampires and and music? He it was so fascinating and the music that he introduced me to. And we ended up uh, when we moved to Victoria, uh, we ended up actually. Um, actually, before we moved to Victoria, we had a radio show at UBC. So he was really into music and wanted to learn radio. And we ended up applying to get just a show. And it was called Laced in Darkness. And we ran this show for, I think, like a year. It was the 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. time slot once a week. Holy moly. And yeah, it was called Laced in Darkness with Ariok and Raven. Oh, hey, and, Raven. <laughs> yeah, he's got so he's gonna he's digging up all these old episodes that we used to do, uh, and and he's gonna relaunch them or reshare them. Or oh my we'll gosh, do. you 
he better let me yeah. know when these things drop. I would love to listen to that. It's sure. funny because so long-winded answer to your question about music. That's a perfect answer, actually, and it, it really lets us know kind of where you're coming from with that. Because <clears throat> again, like my sister being older, and then me being this, you know, jock, if you will, I kind of had these two personas in high school, right? So I played music. And I loved music. So I was like in the band class and, you know, all of this. But then I was also the basketball football guy, you know. So it's like, and, and I'm going to say it here first. I had a power mullet for a long time. That's right. It was amazing. Mullets are coming back. Oh, no. They are back. (laughs) And fury. Holy moly. But, uh, you know, I remember um, I must have been like around the third grade. And again, my sister is older and my mom lived in this house, this really old kind of a rustic house. And I remember walking out of my bedroom upstairs. And as soon as I'd walk out, there was a a little bathroom on my left. And when I mean little bathroom, I mean, it's like you got to try to shimmy your way into it. You know, it's so small. And my sister was in there doing her hair. Now, mind you, this is like 80s. So the hair is 15 feet wide and at least that tall. You know, and she's like on her 15th or 16th can of Aquanet getting it to stay, right? And so she's like, and she's called me Shorty since like the dawn of time. I don't remember ever her saying, you know, Ian, like, hey, Shorty. So I remember walking by and she's like, I want you to listen to this. Okay. So she presses play and on the cassette tape, people, cassettes back then, you know. And uh, I just remember this really kind of classical, weird music coming out, right? And I'm just starting to play music, too, so I'm kind of trying to pick up on some things. And I'm kind of looking at her like, what are you playing for me, right? Because she is all about, like, Judas Priest and Dawkins and Rat and, you know, all these bands at that time, right? And so I'm like, what are you playing for me? And then it's like there's this chord at the end, and it fades out, and then there's this, like, distortion chord coming in, and it was Metallica's Fight Fire with Fire. I was like, I was hooked. I'm like, I'm a metalhead from this point on. I like it. So you move forward. Yeah, totally. So moving forward and stuff, I was always like hanging out with all these people that are like, oh my God, boy bands are awesome. And I'm like, yeah, put Slayer on. (laughs) Put some Megadeth on or something. You know, so it was always kind of really funny. But then I can go with my mom or whatever, and we would go to like the symphony. And I would just be like, this, this is freaking awesome. So the music, and then you started talking about, like, ministry and stuff. And I remember, like, seeing ministry and Al Jurgison walking by, and I'm like, dude, you know. Like, not walking by and going to the show. Like, they were in town, and I was downtown going to the show, and he was walking down the street going back to the club. And I was like, I know. Oh, that's cool. You know, that kind of stuff. So when you started talking about all these concerts and things you've been to, I'm like, yeah, I I saw that tour. (laughs) Well, I think, too, like, we were – we grew up like, especially, you know, in the early nineties, like there was such a movement with mm-hmm. the grunge and it was so, it was so different that it really played a role in so much of our lives. I mean, oh, I was yeah. 16 years old. We were listening to, you know, Pearl Jam and, and, and like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, yeah. um, all the other grunge Nirvana, um, you know, all the, all of those, those bands, which was such a, it was such a step away from music, I think, and how it had been in the past. And it was so raw and real that it really, 
it's so powerful to go back and listen to those bands um, nowadays. Like I have a, a playlist, which is like nineties grunge. Right. <laughs> and it, it's just so cool. And, and a couple of years ago, I think you were hearing the conversation I was talking about a couple of years ago. Like sometimes I try to set a theme for the year as you know, like what I want to accomplish or what I'm going to focus on. And one year I was like, you know what? I don't go to enough concerts. Like, I like concerts. I don't like spending the money for them, but whenever I go, I come back and go, that was totally worth it. I love concerts. So there was one year that I said, I'm going to see as many concerts as I can. And I lucked out and I got, I got sting tickets. Sting has been one of my favorites for like ever. And I got sting tickets. He, he played at the Commodore and the Commodore is like, I don't know, maximum a thousand people or something. It's wow. this tiny little club. And this was like four years ago. And he released a new album and he really wanted to do a tour where he went back to sort of that, that um, you know, intimate yeah. vibe feel. And he wanted to play for a much smaller audience. And I couldn't believe that I got these tickets for, for this show. So I've seen him on in giant, you know, filling stadiums. And then I got to see him play in this tiny little pub, which was amazing. And then... I went and saw Cat Empire, which is just like big band, high energy, unbelievable. Like just, you're just dancing the whole time. And then I saw Tool, oh, which yeah. anytime you can see Tool in concert, it's amazing. I saw Frontline Assembly. I saw Depeche Mode and they put on the most incredible show, you know, and these guys are old now. <laughs> I know. Right? Yeah. So it's just, yeah, music in general has always been a huge part of, of who I am. And it was really formed at, you know, younger with my, with my mom. And then at that 16 year old age, when I was so impressionable yeah. and just was able to break out. And I, I really value that lesson that I learned in my life to push outside of what is normal or comfortable or what everybody else listens to. Right. I, I gained so much confidence from being able to say to my friends, well, I don't care if you don't like it. This is really right. special music. To me. I really like it. And, and music, you know, it brings you back so much. It, it triggers memories instantly. And I can play a song and just be like, Whoa. Absolutely. That brought me right. Absolutely. I think, yeah. you know, for me too, like uh, a lot of the music um, growing up, I was really like, I'll just use like Iron Maiden for an example, like stories in their music, right? So the lyrics are telling you a really cool story. And I was really, really drawn to storylines. And I learned a lot. I remember uh, actually, again, listening to an Iron Maiden song, The Trooper, and not knowing this big battle and stuff and going to my history teacher and, and then sitting down after class and her going, okay, this is what the lyrics mean. Right. And tells me about like the Russians and all this stuff. I was like, okay, that's cool. So it's like a learning opportunity. Right. So I <laughs> fast forward that you have friends that are like, you know, hanging out with their girls now and they're like, Oh my God, new kids on the block. And it was just like, what are they even talking? This makes no sense. And that was one of the things with music. I didn't really care if the music was 
not my style, but they had to have something interesting to say for me to kind of pick up on it. And for whatever reason, and I think you and I might be a little bit in the same boat here that we're so chipper and just extroverts and just, hey, everybody, ah, you know, full on all the time that the darker music is more taking us on the other side of us, right? And so some of those darker lyrics and your journey with, you know, your journey as Raven going through and, uh, you know, just me, like I said, you know, I would listen to like heavy stuff, you know, yeah. so. Oh, that's the whole point a lot of times yeah. is like, and I think you really, I don't know that anyone has really verbalized it like that, but I think that's really um, a good way to explain it in that, yeah, I am extroverted. I'm, I'm energetic. I'm busy. I'm constantly putting my energy out there. And every once in a while, it's like, I just need to go and right. feel like crawling into a dark hole and playing really dark music just to sort of like re, re grow your energy, I guess, re, yeah. you know, recharge. Yeah. Um, it, you yeah. know, and in my videos, I, I play a lot of metal and stuff and I actually, I'll get some DMS once in a while. They're like, dude, your videos are cool, but I cannot handle that music. Can you change it? I'm like, Nope. Nope. I am a metal guy. These are my videos and that's what I like. And then I got other people going like, I don't like metal, but it fits your, your writing or whatever. I'm like, okay, well that's cool. So, yeah. So, uh, nice. I'm, I'm really kind of curious and kind of want to start tickling on this now. So we're going to fast forward to Misty out of, uh, I don't know, out of the Raven phase or maybe still in. But um, I'm really interested to know when those two-wheeled little things came into your life, when you were starting to think about, like, motorcycles. Okay, let's do this. Um, that's, what's really funny is I never thought about motorcycles. So I, like I said, when, you know, I, I started a relationship at 16, um, I ended up moving over. I did a bunch of travel in between while still in a relationship, sort of, <laughs> I ended up moving to Victoria, um, to be in that relationship. And so I, I had a very different experience at university because I was essentially common law with my boyfriend and we had an apartment um, and we lived like a married couple. <laughs> and actually I was engaged at a very young age and I had a plan. It was like, this was my high school sweetheart. We're going to get married. We're going to have kids. We're going to raise a family. Um, I was taking child and youth care at, at UVic. I have always been interested in working with kids. I always wanted a family. And that was sort of the the plan for my life with with travel, because I was very um, I was restless. And I guess that was the question between the two of us was, will your restlessness settle and can you stay put or do you will you end up just not being able to maintain this sort of lifestyle that he was interested in? And out of the blue, he he um, he bought a motorcycle, completely out of the blue. It was like completely out of left field for him to even do anything like that. And it was no big deal, really. I just jumped on the back, and and uh, I was a passenger because that's what we did. And 
I, you know, looked into getting my learners. I like fiddled around with it, but I wasn't super into it. And I just thought my place was kind of on the back. And then he got more and more involved in riding and he started meeting bigger groups of riders and, you know, they would go on these social rides and it was, it was a bit more social for him. But one day we rode in front of the Empress at uh, Victoria Harbor there. And there was, I don't know, probably 20 motorcycles, everybody decked out in their leathers and um, matchy matchy and everything. And we rode up and then I thought nothing of it. And I was sitting on the back and hopped off and chat, chat, chat. And again, I was like the only girl in all of the guys and I loved it. Um, you know, I'm kind of used to being in that scenario. I was comfortable with it. And then, and then out of the blue, this friggin' 1989 Honda CBR 600 zooms up and everybody's heads turned. And there was a woman driving the, riding the bike. And she roars up stops and everybody's like and I see the ponytail and she takes her helmet off she's got the blonde hair she's gorgeous and everybody is just like swooning over her and I just was sitting there going like the heck am I doing on the bench I want to I want I want to be her I want that and so I walked, I just went up to her right away and I was like, Hey, I'm Misty. Like, oh, you're so cool. Like, I love your bike. How did you learn how to ride? And, uh, her story was super cool. She, um, she'd sort of grown up with motorcycles around their, their family. And her brother was a, was a big rider, um, at the time. And, uh, and she was super kind and we just really hit it off and she heard that I had my learner's license so she let me try her motorcycle and um she inspired me to get my license right away and then I ended up buying the exact same bike <laughs> as hers and we and then that was it that was like I got my own bike and from the day I got my license it was every day all the time riding 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 and we rode constantly and we played riding games and and I had no idea what I was doing because nobody had taught me anything I just jumped on a bike got my license and then was riding like a lunatic <laughs> on the road with no idea what I was doing but somehow I picked it up fairly quick and and rode reasonably well um considering so that was That's that was pretty... a 4A in that is actually really cool. Just like sitting down there and having another female just like, hey, what's up? Because it is such yeah. a male-dominated sport, right? So do you remember her name? Oh, yeah. It was Deanna. Deanna, we're still um, – we've kind of lost touch, but we're still Facebook friends, and, and I credit her big time. Um, you know, we went, we went through a lot of uh, – we went through a lot of things together. So – it got very dark. Um, we we lost a lot of friends. And one of the people that we lost was her brother, Michael Battle. Oh. And that was a very, very profound uh, loss to the community and very shattering to a 20-something-year-old, 
you know, new rider, just getting into the sport to suddenly see people dying. Um, it was, you know, it was profound, but it also just goes to show you that at that stage in life, you don't really make the smartest choices. And even when people are dying around you, it doesn't always smarten you up. (laughs) And, um, so I consider myself very lucky that I didn't, you know, get injured more or worse. Um, because the stakes are super high on the street and we, we rode irresponsibly and, uh, you know, as you kind of do. (laughs) So yeah, it was, um, you know, her and I went through a really challenging, uh, period and she's like dear, dear to me, um, for all of those experiences that we went through. I think that's, uh, I don't want to use the term rite of passage, but I don't, I don't know what else to call it, but I think, you know, for a lot of people that get their motorcycle endorsement or start riding at a younger age without any experience prior to, I think that wild abandonment, the reckless, the, I mean, the videos we all see on whatever platform, Instagram or whatever of the dudes on crotch rock, it's just hundred and whatever miles an hour down the freeway and, waving in and out of cars, running from the cops. I mean, I never did the cop thing, but I definitely went way too fast on crotch rockets. Way too yeah. fast. Yeah, we did We did that. And then we got into like the stunting too. Like there was, you know, here's here's someone like me who, who doesn't shy away from being the center of attention, as my sister will <laughs> happily tell you. I've um, never heard her and- say that. Weird. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, um, you know, you have to remember this was 20, 23 years ago that I started riding. It wasn't like super common for women to be riding. There was me in Deanna and then there was like a handful here and there, but we would always be in giant groups of men. Right. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're, they're doing wheelies and I'm like, I don't learn how to do a wheelie. And then they're doing stompies and I'm like, I don't learn how to do that. And then we just kept pushing it and pushing it. And I started doing these, like I was standing up on the bike. That was like my signature move. So I'd throw it into neutral and jump up on the bike and surf down and cruise down the street. And then we would just push the limits. And I started doing that down like main street, Victoria past all the bars at, you know, lineup time when everybody's lined up for the bars and I'm all up (laughs) doing like squiggly stuff down the street. Right. So it, it, you know, it perpetuates itself because you get noticed. Mm-hmm. And then when you, when I was like decent at it, then I got noticed more and, you know, it, it sort of, you know, I look back now and I, I think it's a bit comical, but I also am a little embarrassed by my <laughs> squiddly attitude. Like, yeah, that was me oh, flashing God orange bra underneath my shirt while I was standing on the bike because that got attention. Right. Um, I, I look at things a little differently now. I try to, I don't seek it as <laughs> intently right, yeah. as I did. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think we all kind of grow out of that crazy phase a little bit. Um, I never flashed my orange bra, but I did do a lot of stupid things like that, you know. I always try to keep that underneath, but I, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things, though, about you talking about being one of the only women is, you know, my writing background has come from a lot of male-dominated uh, writing, right? So you have, like, the Harley crowd or even way back as a kid just riding dirt bikes and stuff. I mean, that was all all dudes, right? I don't really – I remember my sister rode, but she didn't really ride. You know, she had a motorcycle, and she'd come out, and she'd put along a little bit, but she never really rode, you know. And so I think once I got into the ADV community – and I know your, your journey is a lot different than mine, and your riding's just all over the place. Um, but for me, getting in – and then all of a sudden, like down here, when I first started getting on Instagram, uh, Tiffany, you know, the feminine tomboy on uh, on the Instagrams, I was like, oh, girl writer. And then all of a sudden, Grace, oh, girl writer. You know, it's pretty rad. And then all of a sudden, I come up with the mixed nuts, and it's like, it's like half. And I'm just, this is freaking awesome, you know, just getting into something like that, where it's just more 50-50, and it's, I think it's awesome. So, you know, come along with her because it wasn't it wasn't like that, and it's interesting to see the change and the difference because it certainly wasn't like that twenty three years ago. It was um, much more noticeable. Um, I had short hair at the time, and a friend of mine was worried that people were going to mistake me as a boy on the bike, and she wanted every she was proud. She wanted everyone to know, so she bought me this fake ponytail. So it was this long. <laughs> blonde braid and I just kept it clipped to my helmet so I would put my helmet on and there would be this long braid and it was like this hysterical sort of way of saying you know make sure you know that she's a woman because you know you wouldn't tell with the hair otherwise right well you know moving on to, to kind of that point I was I was making um I think somebody like you Tiffany and Grace, like I, I put you three kind of in the same pedestal, if you will. Right. And I have a granddaughter who's three right now and I am, I'm motorcycle papa. That's what she's starting to call me. Right. No, motorcycle papa. And I want to start introducing her more to the motorcycles. And I think it's very inspiring that I have you guys in this little, like, look, these are girls, too, and look what they're doing, you know? Look how powerful they are as women, and look how freaking, like, role models they are. And you're kind of one of those people I want her to look up to, you know? I don't want her, like, Beyonce or whatever, whatever. I want real people, you know, that she can really look up to. Well, <laughs> I guess right now it's all Disney princesses. That's, that's her thing. But, you know, when she gets out of that, I, I just really... I admire, like, especially your attitude and your writing and just all your accomplishments. It's like, Everly, I want you to see Misty, you know. That's what I want for her to, to see, more positive role models. And even the, the music stuff is even good because she is a total metalhead right now, which is awesome. That's <laughs> well, I think what you'll find nowadays, though, is that they don't they don't need – to present, to be presented with female role models, 
because there's so many more nowadays. So what I've noticed is, you know, I was one of the, the, the first, not the first, but I was, it was very few women were riding when I started, but now there's women riders everywhere. And it translates to more little girls at the track and more little girls starting. So this was super cool when, when my kids were really young, I was driving in a car, driving in the car, driving up this hill. And I always, if I see a motorcycle rider go by, I comment, I can't help it on whatever coaching they need or how poorly they're riding. I can't help it. I'm just like, every rider I see, I like, oh, duck feet. Oh, he's stiff arms. Oh, he doesn't know how to steer. Oh, what a bad throttle control, whatever. Not realizing that there's two little human beings that are sponging everything that you're saying. So the coolest thing ever happened when Ashton was about four or five years old and this rider went flying by us and it was clearly a man in my perspective, this motorcycle rider went flying by and made, tried to make this corner. I didn't even say anything. And Ashton says, Hey mom, look at that motorcycle rider. Does she need coaching? And I was like, unbelievable. He assumed that that rider was a female first because he's used to his mom and my friends or the circle riding and being, and he's used to women being in these roles, right? He, he said the same thing about a, a pilot. I said, oh, I met the pilot on, a, on my, my most recent flight. And he said, oh, was she nice? And I was like, like, I still think that pilots and motorcycle riders are men. Like, I yeah. still do, because waking up, they always were. And so to hear the shift in the, the way kids view things nowadays, it's not weird. It's not weird for them. So when we go to the track and I see 10 kids riding and four of them are girls, I want to say four girls. Like, you know, 40% of the kids here are girls. But it doesn't, they don't think it's weird. They they never even bat an eye that there's girls at the track. And so I have to be careful to not make too big of a deal out of it because it's normalized now. And it's it. such a shift from the way it was before because I got noticed. Oh, how did you get here? Why are you here? That's your bike, you race. And now it's they don't see it as different. It's so cool. No, that is super awesome. Super rad. I like that uh, you're starting to see more and more little girls. And as you're saying that, I'm like, hmm, it's about time to get Everly out there for sure. <laughs> I'm very good at teaching kids to ride. Well, there we go. Just need to come down here more. Um, so when did you want to take your riding kind of the next level? Did you like realize like I've had a couple motorcycle instructors on. So I'm kind of wondering like at some point. Did you like, oh, I need, I need some more schooling or did you go like, I'm going to start racing? So it was very accidental. So two, two, two main things happened. One, you know, when you start riding in groups and you're sport bike riding, we would go on very spirited rides. And there was always the hierarchy of like who would lead the rides and who would be at the tail end and where you fell in, in the order based on 
speed, ability, et cetera, right? There was just this unspoken rule of like, you start at the back and then you kind of work your way up. And so I had been working my way up and getting faster and faster, just on street rides, no coaching, no nothing, still no idea really what I was doing, but just riding a lot and just being naturally good at picking it up, I guess. And so I slowly started moving to the front of the group. And I will never forget the ride where we pulled over at a stop or a rest stop. We took a little rest. And then they sort of made it. We said, we want to make an announcement. We would like Misty to lead the rest of the ride. Oh, no Congratulations. kidding. Congratulations. Nice. <laughs> like, you have earned this. And I was like, like, yeah. I'm gonna, oh, I'm going to lead this ride. And so I took off like a banshee. Like, I'm going to prove to them how fast I am. And I was like scraping my foot peg, which I look back now. is like the most atrocious thing you could possibly do while riding a 1989 CBR 600 as fast as it could possibly go, scraping foot pegs as we went along. But I was very cool in that group because they could see the sparks flying behind me. So not only did I progress to leading the ride, but I showed off by sparking them all behind <laughs> and leading a really good race or race, a ride. Yeah. In my mind, it was a race. So that was sort of the, the first step to knowing like I can ride, like I, I can keep up with the fast guys in the group. I can push myself. I can handle the bike, you know, I was a decent rider, but I still had no idea that there was motorcycle racing going on or that people did that. And uh, a good friend of mine, Scott Collins yeah, as, as, of Adventure Books, Co-op, yeah, who I have known, him. Yeah. who I have known for 23 years um, and was one of these riders who was typically leading the, the group rides and, um, you know, so knows my progression from newbie squid rider. Uh, out of the blue one day, he said, hey, I'm going to ride down to Seattle to watch our friend Oliver Jervis uh, race in Seattle. Do you want to go? And I was like, I don't know, motorcycle racing. I don't know anything about it. Who cares? Whatever. Not really interested. And he's like, well, what if you could take your bike out at lunch and try your bike on track. I had just progressed from my old bike to a 2000 and a 2000 Kawasaki uh, 600RR. Nice. ZX6. Yeah. And it was like new. I bought it brand new. It was the only yellow and black one on the whole island. It was like a, my pride and joy. And I was like, yes, if I can take this on a racetrack, yes, let's go. So total last minute, we took the ferry, we rode down to Seattle, some fun little, you know, back roads, et cetera. And we arrived at Seattle International Raceway on, I believe it was like a Saturday race, Saturday morning race weekend start. And we went into the gates and it was unlike anything I had seen in my entire life. There were just rows and rows and rows with pits and tents and motorcycles everywhere and engines were revving and the smell of race gas and exhaust and fumes and everything was busy and people were zooming by on pit bikes and mini dirt bikes and scooters and bicycles and zip 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 and there were helmets and leathers and 
and people limping by and people figuring out where they had to go and the sound of bikes in the background. And it was just like, I was like, where are we? This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And we went and we were meeting people and, you know, we went and saw Ollie who was set up in his pit and like, just the setup was cool. He had matching bikes and he had a mechanic and, and just seeing everything was just mind blowing. And so we went to watch the bikes going by and they're like going by so fast. It's super exciting. And then at lunch hour, they were like, okay, it's time for taste of racing. And so anyone who wanted to could go single file behind a guy with a penny, really slow. But we went and did two laps of the racetrack. And I swear the second I rode out onto the track and went to do the first corner, in my head, I was like, I'm going to be a motorcycle racer. I can do this. This is what I'm going to do. I am going to do this. <laughs> and by the end of the two laps, I had convinced myself that I was going to be a motorcycle racer. And I came in and my friends, Scott included, <laughs> took one look at my face. And I was like, where do I sign up? I'm signing up. How do I sign up for the race school? How do I do this? I'm going to race. And that was it. It went a million miles an hour after that. I came in, I signed up for the race school. I think it was a couple of weekends later. I went and took the race school. Um, and then I just dropped everything. It just went, my life went, was going this way. And it went, <laughs> and a million miles an hour that way. Oh my gosh. It was very. So you said two weeks later, you're in race school. I believe the timing was about that. It was very, very quick. So I signed up immediately yeah. um, to do this. And um, yeah, then I got my novice race license and then I went to do my first race and then it just progressed. And I'm not kidding. I got my race license, I think on July 3rd, 2001. And I'm pretty sure on July 3rd, 2002, I won my first race. Oh, wow. And it was like, it was like got after it super like, yeah, it all happened very, very fast. And this was, and to add a little bit of element of emotion, yeah, I guess, um, in 1999, my dad was working as uh, the marketing, the PR and media coordinator and manager for uh, Greg Moore, who was Dude. an indie lights at the time. I've got a yeah. story about him. Mm -hmm. So my dad had worked with Greg for several years and had just signed on as like his official manager for PR and wow. sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. And was actually at the race with Greg when he was killed. Yeah. And so that was in, it was October 31st, 1999. And I remember the day and I remember going to the funeral and I remember it was the first time. And I think the only time I've seen my dad cry. And so that was in October of 1999. In very early 2000, April something is when I got a motorcycle and my dad was like, 
beside himself. Like, I don't want to know about you riding. I don't want anything to do with it. And so then when I called him and told him I was going to race motorcycles, again, he was like, no, too much, too close. Can't handle it. And he said very specifically, don't ask me for money. Don't ask me for help. I don't want to know about the races. You can let me know after that you're safe. I don't want to worry about it. And he was just like, it was so emotional and raw for him that that's where he was at. So for this whole first year when I was racing, I never told my parents when I was racing, where I was going. We didn't have the same social media at the time. So it wasn't posted everywhere where I was, et cetera. (laughs) And um, so I never told them anything. And I had multiple crashes in those early years because I had no idea what I was doing. Right. And the day I won my first race, I called my dad. He was the first person I called. And I said, dad, I won. And he goes, what? I said, I won my race. I won. And he was like, what? We need sponsorship. You need a reach out. You need a website. Oh my God. And all he like switched into marketing manager guy and, and started mentoring me on how to make motorcycle racing a business. So he was the one that was like, start a business account, get a website, start looking for sponsors, start writing race reports, start thanking your sponsors. And he really worked to teach me from a distance because it was still hard for him Mm -hmm. emotionally, but from a distance on how to do the business and handle the business side of things. Um, and so, yeah, so he's been like a background support system basically since that, that day. That's actually, so just to know that there was some, there was, it wasn't as simple as I make it sound like there was a lot of emotion involved, right? We had lost Deanna's brother in the midst there. Um, you know, there were other people that we lost along the way The the timeline is spotty, but there was a lot of emotional stuff that went along with going and fulfilling and following this race path. Yeah. Um, just to make that really clear is like, there's a lot of reality that goes along with it. <laughs> I think it's great that you're actually bringing a, a lot of this up because I, th- I think a lot of the storylines of people who are successful are like, I started here and look at me now. Right. So you, you miss the dot essentially in between those dates. You know, so saying a lot of the hardships and stuff like you talking about the crashes and then even with your dad with with Greg, which uh, a funny side note real quick is. um, So when Casey and I were really young, uh, I I don't know, maybe we were just married or whatever. Um, We were huge, huge into the Indy cars and then the Indy lights go to the race every year. We knew drivers. We knew sponsors like Greg Moore players. We got all that right. And like we would literally just know everybody. And so for whatever reason, I don't remember what part, but we went to a race here in Portland and um, we were walking through the Indy Light Pits and there was nobody around. It was just us, essentially. And it was a hot day and she was (laughs) she wasn't dressed very much. And um, we're actually 
the car 99, you know, and we're like, oh, wow, you know, because we were we were end of the players team. Right. So I remember them up in the Indy cars and then watching. And I remember the, the color schemes were just backwards. I think um, if I remember correctly, I might have this backwards. The Indy cars were pre- predominantly blue with the white and then the Indy lights were white with the blue. This kind of a little bit of a difference. So we were we were just walking by the players cars <clears throat> and we were there by Greg's and um, we we're just it was just us. There was no crew, nobody out, just the trailer. He walked out of the trailer and came over and talked to us for a while. And it was just, okay, he was talking to Casey, not me. (laughs) He was over there chit-chatting with her. But I just remember, like, this dude is really freaking cool, like really cool. And then I don't – I'm kind of wondering if it was your dad because somebody else came out and was like, "Uh, time to go inside or whatever. You know, I was like, okay, it was nice, nice meeting you. You know, I just remember that's always been one of the highlights. And then once we found out that he died at the race, we were both like, oh, what? So the yeah. fact that there's a little bit of a loose connection there, it's kind of neat. But I want to go yeah. back a little bit. Okay. So yeah. you you mm-hmm. you went on the track, you did your two laps, and you were just hook, line, and sinkered. I mean, you were done. This is it. And then a couple of weeks later, you go to race school. What was that first moment of race school? Because in my mind, knowing me, anytime I'm doing something yeah. like that, I can't sleep the night before. I'm just like, mm-hmm. I want to go, I want to go, and I want to go, you know. So it's like super excitement. And then once you get there, you're like super nervous, right? So what was like your day one of race school like being there? And where was it? The the thing with motorcycle racing is that that, that it's cumbersome. So there's a lot of equipment fired. There's a lot of prep fired. There's a lot of logistics. There's a lot of stuff to do. So race school wasn't at Seattle Raceway. It was, I can't even remember exactly where it was, outside of Seattle somewhere. It was at like an old airport parking facility that they made sort of this track. And we had no idea what we were doing. So I went with two friends of mine from the island. I'm not a mechanic. I have no idea how to work on bikes. I had even less experience back then. And we were like, I don't, what do we need? I don't know, throw the bikes in the back of this ghetto trailer that we had and throw some water and a snack and show up, right? So we, I just was seeing, I should dig out the pictures. The pictures are unbelievable. We. This trailer, I don't even know how it survived the drive down. Our bikes, we had nothing was prepped correctly. So while we were at the track, we're like, oh, you have to tape the lights. You have to take off the mirrors. You have to do all this stuff. We had no idea. So we're like slammed trying to figure out how to do that. We were duct taping our lights and drawing with Sharpie our number plates on the bike and people were essentially laughing at us because we had no idea what we were doing. Nor did we bring a tent or shade or chairs or any of the things that you need. And so there's a funny picture of us, like we had a a mat and we were holding it over our heads, like we're in the hot sun, there's no shade, we do this. (laughs) So the, the very first moments were complete overwhelm, like, what are we doing here? And 
we are so unprepared. We don't know what we're doing. But also with extreme excitement because we didn't really care. We just wanted to get learn how to how to how to do what we needed to do so we could go and race. And and so there was a lot of learning. You have to learn, you know, all of the um, the flags and the etiquette and how to enter and exit a track. And um, they didn't really teach a ton, but I do remember that was the first time I got my knee down. And it was the most exciting feeling. And I beat my friends in getting the knee down. And I was so stoked because it was all a competition. Of course. And um, we had a we had a great old time. And then we we were taking that experience and trying to improve on it at each of the races we went to. So each each race was what did we forget this time? <laughs> what can we add to our list for next time? What do we need to buy? What do we need to source? What do we need to bring? Um, you know, there was just, there's so much involved with motorcycle racing that it's, you know, 90% of the battle is all the prep and organizing stuff. And the rest of it is, is the actual riding portion. And I just happened to be accidentally good at that part. It wasn't until the next phase of my life, which we can go into that. I started to really get good at actually motorcycle racing and fueling the career from there. That sounds like a perfect segue. So what was the next part of your writing career? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so with my dad's, uh, you know, encouragement and assistance with growing the business side of things, I started to, you know, like create a website and create an email list and um, look for sponsors. And so, you know, I was, um, uh, I can start name dropping some places, but like Action Motorcycles in in Victoria was one of the, the first sponsors that I had. And I was, um, I was dating one of the mechanics there and so he was super helpful in, you know, prepping my bike and teaching me what, showing me what needed to be done, but also doing it for me because I had no idea what I was doing. And um, Action was the first place to sponsor me. So I had discounts on parts and they would occasionally give, you know, give me things. And I remember, you know, when I, when I got like a case of Bardal oil, <laughs> like how amazing that was. Like I got sponsored. I have oil. <laughs> and so I started collecting more and more sponsors, you know, very small in the beginning, but these were people that didn't have to believe in me. And yet they did believe in me and, and they gave what they could give. And I will never like, I, I'm so indebted to them for that belief in me initially. Mm-hmm. Um, that I hope to one day be able to give back to more people by sponsoring them in some ways. But the, the biggest breakthrough in my riding came when a, when a sponsor on the Island, a a friend of, of, um, you know, my boyfriend at the time, Mark, uh, a company called, um, CLS West. And they approached me with a different kind of sponsorship option. And they said, have you ever heard of the California Superbike school? Keith code twist of the wrist. And I was like, no, (laughs) no idea. And they said, okay, well, it's the school in the States. And, you know, Keith is renowned as one of the best motorcycle coaches in the world, but him and his wife, Cindy, uh, his name was Phil 
and Cindy had gone to the school multiple times and they felt like the best gift that they could give me to further my racing was not money for races or whatever. It was to send me to the superbike school. And for me at that point in my life, that sponsorship, like it literally changed the course of my life and has meant more than anything anyone has done because it set me on this new path. And basically they sent me to all four levels of the superbike school, which would have been completely financially out of my realm. And I, they, they covered everything. So we flew down together in the spring of 2003. So I'd been racing for a year and a half, I guess, crashing a lot, <laughs> winning some. And we went to Laguna Seca. And I got to do the California Superbike School on a Kawasaki ZX6 um, school bike. And it changed my life. Um, I went down there with an, an attitude <laughs> of thinking I was hot shit and, um, that I was going to show them how good I was and that, yeah, for sure I could get some coaching, but weren't they going to be impressed and surprised at how fast a girl was and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I went down there and got my ass kicked, <laughs> like really kicked. And there was a female coach and she kicked my ass <laughs> and it was the most humbling experience I think I've ever had going all of the coaches, every single one of them could kick my ass easily and give hand signals while they were doing it. <laughs> um, so number one, I was humbled. Number two, I really, really spent a lot of time learning the skills that they were teaching us. And I was determined to get better. And I realized I had a lot of bad habits that came from how much riding I had done in a very small period of time. And the, they were really hard to break. And um, the methodology at the Superbike School is very much to put the rider at cause of their own riding. So they don't word things as you're not doing this, you're not doing that, do this, do that. They word it as in this particular corner, does the bike feel as stable as it did in that particular corner? And you're like, oh, no, it doesn't actually. It feels like crap. And then they're like, okay, well, what are you doing with the throttle? What is good throttle control? Where should you be getting on the gas? How does that affect the stability in the corner? How is that going to change your line in the corner? And all these things, I was like, I have no idea. Like, throttle <laughs> on, you go faster, throttle off, you slow down. Like, no idea. And so just the simple act of doing two days of super break school at Laguna Seca, back to back, and then going back to my races, instant improvement, like seconds. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, you're not just getting a little bit better. You're getting a lot better. And we're only just scratching the surface here. And at the same time as I was taking the school as a student, now I was on their email list and they sent out an email saying, 
always looking for motorcycle coaches. Uh, if you think you've got what it takes. So this was part of why I went down with such an attitude because I was like, oh yeah, I got what it takes. <laughs> They're going to be with me. I'm going to be the best coach ever. Right. And then I was like, holy crap. It, there's a lot involved in being a coach. And, um, and so I started the process during those first two days that I was there as a student of trying out to be a coach. So there was a multitude of steps. Step one was a phone interview, which I passed. Step two was in-person interview. How would you fit in? How's your personality? Can you communicate? Blah, 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 blah. Yes. Then there was the riding. And they assessed my riding on those first two days. And they said, nah, not quite there yet. Need some work. We think you'll need another six months to a year of racing experience, etc." And I'm very, very stubborn. And I said, I'm coming back in four months and I am going to pass the test then. I will be better. I'm going to do it. And they were like, many of our coaches have had to come back multiple times and, you know, need a lot of experience. So we'll see how it goes. And so I just worked my ass off. I studied the, the manual stuff. I read up on all of the tech and I went down a couple months later down to Streets of Willow to take level three and four of the school and on the final day I did the riding checkout and uh, they were like yep you have passed we think we can start your training wow. and I was uh, over the moon um, with with that suggestion and and there was a bunch of other things I want to touch on that occurred in there as well in terms of um, that was my dream job, right? So when, yeah. when I went down and I knew I was applying for this, it was like, that was all I could think about. Could you imagine coaching, motorcycle riding, being paid to do that? That was like the only thing I wanted. But I was also broke. <laughs> was I moved back to my parents' house by this time. I left the island. I was living in my parents' basement. No money, no long-term solution for how I was going to make money. And my dad was really pushing me to, to get into business. He's like, you're an entrepreneur and you're going to be good at business and blah, 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 blah. And I applied for this regular job. Monday to Friday, nine to five as this marketing coordinator for this company and felt like I bullshitted my way through the entire interview and somehow got offered the position. This was like days before I heard officially that I could coach with the school. And I really struggled and my dad was stoked. He's like, you're going to take it right. You're going to take the job. It was stable predictable, <laughs> responsible. <laughs> and I swirled, I struggled. And I was like, I think that I will want to jump into a river if I work nine to five, yeah. if I do this. And so against everybody's suggestions, I turned the position down. And literally the next day, you know, while, when I'd been in 
California with the school, they said your writing had now been good enough. They didn't say you have a job. They said, we think your writing is good enough. We'll, we'll get back to you. Then I went home. Then I got offered this other job. I turned it down, not knowing what, what was going to happen, but believing very deeply that I was not meant for a nine to five job. Right. And that I want something more. And I feel very much like it was that that was part of how the universe <laughs> said, you know what? You risked, you risked responsible, stable, predictable, safe, financial security. So you are rewarded with the fact that we're offering you this job, which was unconventional, but way more exciting and way better. So that message is what I want to tell a lot of people is just because you get offered something that is safe and predictable and it sounds really good, go inside, go figure out, is that what your heart wants? Is that what will, will grow you as a human being? Is that what you're passionate about? Is that what's going to light up your world and create a difference for the people that you interact with? Because I knew that that other job wasn't. And the second I became a coach with the Superbike School, it was like, that is my purpose. I finally found it. So that there was there was the racing on one side, but even more valuable from that is the is the absolute joy that I get from being a coach. And it's really indescribable indescribable to most people, but it's something that I really value and want to teach everybody out there that you can do whatever you choose and whatever fills your heart. Right. And, and it gives you so much joy to, to push beyond what is comfortable to get to that spot. And I see it more and more with the way society is going now that they're like, we don't, want to waste our lives with jobs that don't give us anything. People are looking for more fulfillment, but it often comes with some sacrifice, but it's totally worth it. Yeah. And rent. <laughs> and rent. No, I think that is some of the best thing that you can possibly say. And this is coming from a guy that's, uh, you know, has his own business too. So it's, it's that whole, just jump off the ledge and go, you know, let the brakes off. <laughs> Just go with it. And it, it really seems like it worked really well for you getting the job yeah. down there. So once you got offered, you know, the job, I assume there's a little bit of travel involved. Yes, a lot of travel. Now, like the, the timing was interesting because I, you know, I did, um, you know, I did, uh, I did a bunch of training because the training process is, is extremely arduous. Um, not a lot of people actually complete the whole training process with the school. And, you know, they say it's something like 1% of applicants actually get through and become certified coaches. No kidding. So I spent a lot of time initially really working on the training. I wanted to go, I didn't want to just stay at intro coach like level. I wanted to just get me trained as much as possible as I can and, you know, so there, so there was, there was a lot of coaching, uh, travel, racing, trying to fit it 
trying to fit it all in um, was was really interesting, but also very very enjoyable and fun. And I got to see a lot of places and ride a ton. And all of that riding helped with my racing and made me a better overall rider. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I remember, um, yeah. I can't remember what conversation this was, if it was what time we were hanging out, but um, you were talking about how the lingo is pretty much the same no matter where you go. So you have all the coaching and, and all the principles are the same and you go wherever. And I want to say you went. Not the super bikes. So just to clarify. Okay. The lingo between coaches at the super bike school. And this is a testament to the way they run their coaching and training uh-huh. in that if you get me as a coach in, you know, at Laguna Seca, um, and then you go two months later to the California Superbike School in Australia and you ride Phillip Island and you get a totally different coach over there. You are going to get the same terminology, the same questioning format, the same, um, you know, the same types of observations, the same message through and through delivered in very different manners because I'm a completely different of course, personality yeah. coach than someone else. But the 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 value in that is that the tech is the same so we all go through vigorous vigorous training like my manual is not kidding this big it's and that's the third one that i've had right so that's what and and there's constant learning there's constant improvement and there's constant testing on where we're at right we're we're we have to record what we say to our students sometimes so that they can listen and make sure that we're delivering it in the way that that we're meant to deliver it. And it's all quality control. And so that's the way that they get it the same no matter where you go. Yeah. And I, just to clarify. No, that's that's actually what I wanted to say, but you just obviously you said it more rad than me. Um I wanna say you went and I don't know, because we've had a lot of chitty chats, but um, I want to say you maybe you went to Australia and you went to go coach somebody and I remember you saying something you you went on a lap with somebody and he was just like oh my god you're so fast or whatever how many times you've ridden this track and you're like it's my first lap <laughs> it's my first time <laughs> I was like I listened to that I was like legit this this is a legit lady right here so I don't remember yeah, that's was that down fun. in Australia. I don't remember. That's happened multiple times because a lot of a lot of the tracks we go to, we've never ridden before. Right. So we we show up at a new racetrack, whether it's Pittsburgh or Australia or Spain or like wherever we go. A lot of times it will be the first time that we have seen that racetrack. And so they try to let us go out in a rental car ahead of time beforehand, but like it doesn't always work. And I have actually led orientation laps on a track that I have never ever seen before. And as I'm going up over the corner, I'm like, does it go left? Does it go right? Which way? You're like, sway. Oh my gosh. But part of our training, part of what makes us good coaches is that we have to learn tracks first. And so we have methods to pick up cues to learn tracks super fast. And so just because we have to 
And so there's been more than one occasion where, and it's so fun to do, where the, the student will say, you know, oh, you know, like I race here. Where do you think is a good place to pass or whatever? I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what corner that is. Like I just got here. And they're like, what do you mean? Oh, this is my first time. Oh, and they're like, you mean to say you've only done two sessions on this track? And I'm all, yep. <laughs> Follow me. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so it gives you a lot of cred. Um, it was it was really hard initially. So one of the, the biggest learning that I struggled with was, you know, here I was 24, 25, 26 years old or whatever it was. And, you know, female and I'm working with male students and most of them are great, but every once in a while you would get this attitude jerk who you could tell instantly that they were just not stoked about getting the girl. I could almost read it behind their helmet. Like, great, I got the girl. Bet she's not going to be able to keep up to me. And they're just presenting this jerk attitude. Of course. And I really struggled with it at first because, you know, I looked a bit younger than I was. And, you know, like, here's some 40-something-year-old man getting coached by a young-looking female. Didn't always go over very well. And I didn't know how to manage it. And I would get a little bit intimidated until finally my, my chief instructor said, well, are you faster than him? And I said, well, yeah, like, but it's a little tricky, but I am faster than him. And so he said, go out and smoke him, like smoke him. Just go as fast as you can. Don't worry about him behind you, nothing, and make it look easy. Act bored, put your hand on your shoulder. <laughs> Just make it look easy. And I was like, oh my that is going to piss him off. He's going to be so mad at me. I don't know. And I was so nervous to do it. And holy crap, did that guy change his tune? I flew past him. I gave him a hand signal in the air. I went over the top of the crest. I was terrified because I was going really fast. And I was like, ah! and then at the top of the crest, I was all whatevs. And then I kept going. <laughs> and in the in the conversation afterwards, he like right changed. And then I started just giving him this real matter of fact attitude. And I was like, okay, let's talk about throttle control. And he's like, well, I'm really good at throttle control. And I was like, oh yeah, well, did you notice that I left you in the dust on the exit of that corner? Um, you know, did you notice that I was really pulling away from you? And he's like, well, dude, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so what does that say about your throttle control? <laughs> What can be improved? What am I doing with the throttle that's different than what you're doing with the throttle? And it just really changed the tune. And so now, instead of being intimidated by it, I'm all. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh boy. This guy thinks one. I can't. And I'm all, game on, let's go. That is freaking hilarious. So through all of your your coaching, and it sounds like you have – I mean, an endless amount of, of stories from coaching and, and racing and stuff. Was there an actual, like, um, just swinging back, I, the only real comparison I have to anything that you've done like this is just when I was coaching football. And um, I remember we had this kid, Cam Summers, come come on, and he transferred out of a, a, of a really good school, and his dad was one of our coaches, and he was one of my position group players. 
And very, very quickly, very quickly, I was like, I got to up my game because this kid is destined for the next level. This kid, which he did, um, really challenged me as a coach. And he would ask me questions at practice where I'd be like, okay, so he just asked this. If, okay, the safety drops over here and we got the cornerback. Oh, yeah. That is correct, you know. Do you have any of those kind of moments, too, where somebody came on and they were just like, okay, game on, I got to step it up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was – so when I was coaching, you know, most of the coaches, most of the students were adults, and I was loving it, but there was definitely that piece of, you know, I have a degree in child youth care. I really wanted to coach kids, like mm-hmm. – I really wish there were some kids involved here. And then I got a call from Keith Code saying, we've got this phenom kid. He's located just outside of Portland. Um, will you coach him? He's eight years old. And I was like, 100%. I was over the moon. Like, this is the universe giving back to me. It heard my call. It is giving back to me. And so I drove down to a go-kart track in the States, McMinnville, and met this kid. Uh, And his name was Peter Lenz. And fell in love with him instantly and marveled at how good he was. So I I didn't know that kids started that young. I didn't know that kids could ride that well. It was a whole learning process to see this phenomenal child who was better than most of us adults, um, but also needed a lot of coaching. And so it was very fun and very challenging right off the bat to work with him uh, because I had to adapt things to how would a, a child, you know, work with this information. Um, most of the time he was just as capable, if not more, than many adult students at understanding the tech. But then there was also a lot of moments where it was like, he's eight. Like, that's just a kid. He needs his stuffy. He needs a break. He needs a snack. Like (laughs) he needs to run around for a bit. Like he needs to be reminded that this is play. This is like fun, you know? And, and so that challenged me big time as a coach in general because he was so good and the older he got and the faster he got the less we could ride with him on track and so it's a question we get asked a lot like well you're not you know Misty you're not the fastest coach out there you're not the fastest racer out there how how can you coach and it's like well most coaches out there aren't as good as the the athletes that they coach you know, otherwise they would be the the competitors. Right. And and so it's like the ultimate, the ultimate showcase of how good your coaching is by how well you can foster someone else's talent. And then you just get creative with ways of, of working with it. I, I stood trackside. I rode for two corners at a time with him. I led him on one corner specifically, or we did a lot of video footage um, to bridge to bridge that gap. But with Peter came just this new potential of working with kids and seeing 
how far we could potentially get him. Now, with the story of Peter also comes the biggest tragedy in my life, which extends into every single thing I do, every day, every decision, um, because Peter was tragically killed at age 13 in a motorcycle race at Indianapolis. Oh, man. And it was and still remains the worst day of my life <laughs> and the most dear person to me to have lost. And the fact that we lost him doing what I love to do, motorcycle racing, at such an age brought up a tremendous amount of emotional trauma, but also guilt, um, regret, doubt, um, I don't know, grief, yeah. like all of just, I, we really started to question everything. And with Peter's death came a lot of backlash from the non-riding community. So they ended up, Fox News, I think, ended up doing a thing on how children at that age shouldn't be allowed to race motorcycles because they're not capable of making those types of decisions. They don't understand the risk. The parents should be um, arrested for child endangerment, child abuse, et cetera. And it made me raging mad because here you have a family who put their heart and soul into making this child's dreams come true and encouraging him, supporting him, teaching him, being with him. He participated in all sorts of other sports. He was a great student. The bond between him and his parents were, you know, was really close. And he came from a wonderful family where his parents went over and above. And you compare that to, you know, especially in the States, you've got this epidemic of obesity. You've got, you know, children, young children that are overweight, dealing with diabetes and health issues that they never should be struggling with at that age. And here you're telling me that this athletic, adventurous, incredible, smart kid that spends every weekend with his dad, that works on motorcycles, that, that, you know, spends all this wonderful family time and is a great kid is somehow being pushed into it or, you know, that his parents are neglecting him right. just because of a tragic outcome made me so angry. Like, you know, what, where are the parents? Parents should be arrested for having fat kids. Like, I'm sorry, but you know, your responsibility as a parent is to make healthy choices. And, you know, maybe this is going to explode into some backlash. I don't know, but it pissed me off royally <laughs> because, should. you know, it was so unfair and my name got thrown around a lot because I was his coach and, you know, what are people doing supporting this kind of environment? And, and at the same time, his friend who was his age, who we also coached a little bit as well, 
Joe Roberts, has gone on and is now racing on the world stage. He's racing in Moto2. Uh, I think I'm terrible with the race series. But he's gone on to the world stage, and he's in a phenomenal, talented rider, right? And Peter could have and should have been there. And, you know, it just brings up that that sort of question about life. Like, it could happen any time. Right. Kids drown in pools. Kids die by being hit by baseballs. They crash cars at 16. They do this. Like, it sucks. Kids die. Right. And as a parent, it is on the top of your list constantly. And so for me to have gone through this with Peter, it really pushed me to the edge of my comfort zone in terms of what. What will I allow for my kids? Right. And a lot of people are astounded that I will let my kids ride and race in the same sort of scenario as Peter. It's not an easy decision that I make. It's not one that lands lightly on me. It's something I question daily. It's something I uh, try to always have. Actually, I don't try to, it's just always there. And I really try to use it as a day-to-day guide in terms of how do I make this decision based on the factors right now? Um, I don't know if that really makes sense, but it is constantly in my head. Um, Well, I think think those who shout the loudest and accuse the most – are the most uneducated about whatever they're talking about. You know, how many times have we heard from loved ones or friends talking about us having this passion for motorcycles and we ride on the roads and whatever, and you're going to die on that thing. And it's just like, well, okay. But I mean, I walk outside the house every single day too. You know, I drive in a car, I drive in a truck. I, I do this, I do that. I mean, it can happen anytime, any place. And, the fact that it happened on a track is tragic and it's, you know, a devastating loss. But the same point, Fox News should just quiet, you know, whoever is saying it. it's just it, it's ridiculous. And you, you hit it on the point because, OK, so a parent should be arrested for allowing their kid to spend time. Right. But I mean, then with that theory, my dad should be arrested, too, because, I mean, I was climbing mountains with him being in very high exposure areas, you know, at young ages and stuff. And I remember, you know, one time in particularly, um, we were climbing up Mount Hood and there was this guy. So top of Mount Hood, you have the hog's back that goes up and it goes into two chutes. And then the summit's right there. And I remember we were climbing up and this guy was coming down kind of on his back, reverse crab crawl coming down with no ropes or anything. And he's by himself and clearly very inexperienced. My dad was like, I'm going to blade this guy down to the bottom of the hog's back. And everything's fine once you get down there, you know, but it's like this last several hundred feet. So he takes the rope and I unclip. He's like, oh, so you at the top. Okay. So, you know, I was like 16, maybe, 
and went up to the top. And I remember these people were up there, like looking at me, like, um, "What are you doing up here?" <laughs> you know, you're awfully young. But it's the same thing. If if you have the theory of don't let them race, then that's wrong too. And I let my kids play football, and I let my kids drive, and I let this. So I mean, it's a ridiculous comparison and in, in, in theory for people to even bring that kind of stuff up. But again, it's we don't give kids enough. Right. No, like I right. wrote a letter to the Portland, you know, race uh, sanctioning body when Peter was trying to be allowed to race at 13 um, because they didn't think he was you know, mature enough to make those decisions. And I said, you know, from my coaching and racing experience, this kid makes better decisions than most of the 20 something year old men that I race against. Right. And, yeah. and he really did. He, he, he made very capable decisions and was a phenomenal player. And it just happened to be a bad accident. Yeah. Right. It was just a terrible circumstance that, that got him. Right. And, you know, you just, you just never know, but I tend to look at the, the value that the racing brings. Yeah, sure. It's dangerous, but also the kids are wearing all the gear. The ambulance is on site. Um, it's rare that tragedies like this unfold. But now you've got a kid, you know, like mine, for example. He's 14 years old. He's had 10 years of riding uh, experience in controlling all manner of motorcycles, right? He's he's most recently ridden a, a YZ125 motocross bike, and he kicks my ass, and he's just about ready to kick my husband's ass on the track. Um, he's ridden bigger bikes. He rode a Ninja 250 is the biggest sport bike he's ridden. Now you take this kid at 14 and in two more years, he's going to have two more years of experience operating a machine, um, being situ situationally aware, yeah. making smart choices, riding on different circumstances, understanding traction, understanding control, understanding speed. And you're going to put him in a car, Right with next to kids at 16 who have never driven a motor vehicle in their life, right? Which kid is going to make better choices? Absolutely. Right. He's, yeah. got He's got a place where he can go as fast as he wants. That's as safe. So he knows that when he's 16 and he's in a car, you get a speeding ticket or I find out that you're, you know, driving your friends, you know, uh, recklessly, that's it. You're done. Right. But I trust that he'll make better decisions because he understands how machines work. He gets yeah. the consequences. Right. He's been in charge. Yeah, 100 percent. My dad did a good job of that. I think I was rolling around like gravel roads and stuff at like seven. You know, it it's pretty rad. So Not <sighs> a bit of a depressing part there. But I also know you've done more racing than just on the track like that. So you've done some flat track and motocross, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Not not racing per se, but I do ride everything. So my racing career, I did like a couple of years of club racing, Seattle, Spokane, Portland, you know, where I was sleeping in my minivan and scraping together money and eating Mr. Noodles and, and doing that sort of thing. <laughs> um then, then I was doing a, a stint, you know, with my training and getting, um, getting some, some coaching and 
then I hadn't ridden, like I raced an SV650 for, for years and hadn't raced like a 600 or anything bigger than the SV650. And I heard about this one-off race, or I heard about a race series in Ontario called the Pro Honda Oils Women's Cup Challenge. And it was a women's-only series. And up until that point, I'd only ever raced against the men. And so I was really sort of anti-women-only stuff. I was like, what's their problem? They're not brave enough to race with the guys. Why do they need their own class? Boo hiss, like... I thought it was going to be this dumb powder puff class. And so I was curious about it enough that I reached out to someone in Ontario thinking that it would be a great opportunity as a journalist, because I had just dabbled in writing in some motorcycle magazines, to cover the story as like, yeah, <laughs> right for a couple, um, to cover the story as Misty goes to try this ladies only class, right? So I hooked up with um, this incredible guy, George Budaki. He had a, a company called Turn To um, Motorcycle Performance or Service, or I can't remember what it was. But he offered to um, give me a fully race prepped bike to come down to Ontario and try this race series. So I showed up as a nobody had heard of me, whatever to go in this series, never been on the track before, never ridden a 600, raced a 600 before, didn't know the CBR, et cetera, and went down and won one of the races and, and then battled <laughs> with these girls um, to come second or third in the other one. But the overarching experience was that, holy crap, these ladies are fast. It completely changed my opinion of women's only racing because they race differently. Um, it was some of the most clever, strategic, thoughtful racing that I've ever done. Um, women are calculated. Okay. They're planners. I was about to ask what um, the difference was, so this is good. Yeah, I mean, it was like... It, I know what goes on in my own head when I race. And it was like I was racing against a whole bunch of me's. Whereas I think when you're racing against a bunch of men, sometimes they'll just be like this random balls out freaking some guy will just pass you. I don't think it's been thought out. I don't think it's been planned. I think they're just like, oh, you're just going to go as fast as I can here. See what happens. <laughs> That's exactly and, what we think. And that's what I noticed was that it was calculated. There was a, there was a intentional, I'm showing you the wheel here. Now I'm showing you the wheel here. Now I'm planning on where I'm going to pass. And it was intense and it was amazing. And it triggered some more journalistic opportunities because I was very open with my experience. Like I came in here with an attitude. I fully admit it. So you were like that <laughs> guy you... back at MotoGP school, right? Yes. Yes. I was like, <laughs> I get it. Right. Like, and, and I understood a different perspective, like not all women are as comfortable as I am marching into a room full of men and, and learning something new. Not all these women had someone to ask questions about. They didn't know how to work on their bikes. They didn't have a mechanic boyfriend that could help them. Right. So it, it gave me a new perspective on why they wanted 
a more, um, you know, safer environment to come into the sport to encourage them to branch out and, and grow. And many of them did go race against the men. So that led into me racing a 600 in a, in a bigger class. And I, I raced the Canadian nationals in the women's series that year in 2006. And it was an amazing year of racing. Um, we had um, incredible support. It was a show up and ride deal for me. It was like wonderful. And then that led into, um, there was a night when all the Superbike school coaches and Keith Code were sitting, we were watching AMA racing. And there was one girl racing in the AMA 600 class named Jessica Zalewski. And all the guys in, you know, all the coaches were like, you know, it's kind of cool that there's a girl in there, but like, why does the girl always have to be last, right? Like that sucks. And I was defending her saying, who cares if she's last? She's at least out there. Like, you know, you, you, it's not easy just to be out on the grid. Like, that's incredible. I wish I could be like her. And that's when Keith looked over and said, well, you're actually faster than her. <laughs> she came to our school and you could kick her ass. And I was like, hang on, whoa. <laughs> you mean to tell me that I could qualify for an AMA 600 super sport race and beat the only girl that's racing in there. And Keith was like, yes. And I said, we got it. I'm going racing. <laughs> and that moment was like, I'm going to go race AMA. And so very quickly, we put a, a, a race series together, um, approached Kawasaki USA with the support and the word from Keith Code that he believed I would be faster than that one girl. Um, then that, that gave me all the confidence and started that process of doing that. So then I spent two years, 07 and 08, racing AMA 600, which has its whole, the whole bunch of content of all the experiences uh, racing in those series. And then, and then to touch on your question now that I'm not pro racing anymore, I basically learn and ride and enjoy every style. And I use those as jumping off points for a lot of my articles. So I've done a flat track, a couple flat track schools. I've learned moto. I ride moto a lot. Um, I started riding enduro. I started riding AEV stuff moto camping, mountain biking, you name it. If it's got two wheels, I will ride it. Dang. <laughs> we just went over so much stuff. It's just like, uh, what direction are we going now? Right. It, I don't know. It's incredible yeah. because I'm looking at the clicker here and we're starting to tickle two hours. And I'm like, dude, we've got like two or three more hours left that we could totally do. <laughs> okay. Crazy. So um, let's back up a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> AMA 600. Okay. So you went to Kawasaki and you had some support behind you and, uh, there we are. Go <laughs> like how did, how did the Kawasaki come aboard? And then, I mean, you, where were your races? Were, were they all stateside? Were they up in Canada too, or probably back and forth? No, all yeah. stateside. So Kawasaki very quickly said, um, yeah, let's go for it. And I was given two motorcycles 
to use for the season and a parts credit, which was huge. Um, on top of that, I sourced some other sponsorship, um, you know, tires this and, you know, help that, et cetera, et cetera. But it still cost an exorbitant amount of money. And basically, if you want to feel um, very much like you don't belong somewhere, <laughs> you should show up like I did <laughs> at Sonoma Raceway um, with a brand new motorcycle with zero miles on it, fully stocked, with no mechanic, very little support, no idea what I was doing, no concept of what times I could possibly run on this bike that I'd never ridden before. I don't race weekend and have barely one day to figure it all out. And I got laughed at, like laughed at. Like, what are you even thinking you're doing here? There's no chance that whatever setup you've got going here is going to result in you sitting on the grid. And I was like, we'll see about that. But I felt very intimidated. But on the flip side, we parked next to some wonderful people, um, Hawk Mazada and his mechanic and his friends and his pits. They lent us tools. They helped us with stuff, nice, including little things like, Bisty, you still got the stock exhaust on there. You might want to get Leo Vince to come and put your actual exhaust on and very kindly reminding me of all the things I had no idea what I was doing. And then when I went out on track, um, there were some people that weren't stoked that there was a slower person out on track because when I first rode out on track, I was probably 20 seconds, at least 20 seconds slower than I needed to be 20 seconds, wow. which is yeah. that's like a day and a half and, in racing and guys were passing me this close and throwing their hand up like I was a pylon and trying to shake my nerve. And there was 60, 61 or 62 of us going for 44 spots on the grid. So only 44 spots on the grid, 60 some odd riders trying to get that. In order to make the grid, you have to first qualify at a percentage off the leader's pace. So it was like 110% which most of the tracks was about 10 seconds off the leader's pace, just very roughly. So that was one, but then also there was only 44 um, spots on the grid. So over the next few, like we had a Thursday practice, Friday qualifying, Saturday race, I think. So during that day, I had to like dig deep and figure out how I was going to gain some serious time. And I was so lucky. I had Keith Code on the phone with me, walking me through stuff. I had friends that showed up to help be my mechanic. I had Superbike School coaches on hand to remind me of some coaching stuff. And between everybody that supported me on that particular day, I went out for qualifying. This is so, like, so vivid for me. I was qualifying. And I kept coming in and, and my guy was like shaking his head, like, no, like, gotta go faster. You gotta go faster. And I was trying so hard 
And finally, a, a fellow Superbike school coach pulled me aside and he said, stop thinking about it, make it fun. Misty, you're qualifying for an AMA race. You're here. You should be proud of the fact you're here. Don't let it take away the fun. Go out and enjoy yourself, relax, find the groove and just have fun. And I was like, okay, he's right. Like I gotta live this moment. And I went out and I swore I went slower. And I came back in, we got the checkered. I rode till qualifying was done. And I came back in and I was shaking my head and I was like, I don't think I made it. I don't think I made it. And they told me then what my time was and it was much better than I had done before. So I had improved on my time, but we still didn't know what everyone else's were and where I fell on the, the line. And, um, and so then I made someone else go look at the timesheet and he came back and he was like, okay, Misty, you're in 44th on the grid. <laughs> oh, wow. So I, I qualified and I was so stoked. You should have heard the, the pits, like just jumping up and down, screaming, so excited. Step one, we made the grid, my first experience. And while I was miffed that I was last on the grid, I had so many people come up afterwards and say, you know what? You really surprised us and you deserve to be out there because you beat 15 other guys that were, you know, maybe had a better setup and maybe had more experience, but you deserve to be there. And then from there, it was just slow improvements every time like okay I'm last on the grid but I am not finishing this race last <laughs> so step one was don't finish last and I didn't and then every race after that it was how do I improve how do I get better how do I qualify how do I push myself and I got up to my very best race was my favorite track in Ohio and I got into 19th place after starting very far back on the grid um and sadly, I crashed out after the leader, the leader lapped me right at the end and just sucked me into this corner and I crashed, but I still finished 21st in that race. So my best AMA finish was 21st. I had been in the top 20 um, over the two years and it was incredible. It was just an incredible experience to get to race at that level with like I was on, I was racing against Ben Bostrom like literally racing against Ben Bostrom. Jeez, what an experience, you know, doing it professionally and being on the circuit. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> that's actually fantastic. I'll say the fantastic word for everybody, but, um, <laughs> ding. no, I, uh, what an experience, you know, and, and just listening to you, how you showed up on un, unprepared, and then just learning and getting faster and making the grids and doing all that stuff is just freaking rad. So, so you did that for, hmm? <laughs> I said it was fun, really fun. Oh, for a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, dude, for real. So yeah, I just duded you anyways. Um, <laughs> um, so you did that for two years. You also did a little bit of the flats. You did I think there's some pictures of you in the air on motocross. I, I might've stalked your Instagram page the last couple of days, just kind of preparing for this, you know? Yeah. Um, 
What was that like doing, like going from road and putting your knee on the ground to not being on the ground? Yeah, that was, that's more been in the last little while because my kid and my husband prefer the motocross. So, um, that's been more lately as something we can all do as a family and for sure motocross is completely different. It's like, like a lot of it is opposite from how you ride on a road race bike. So that's been really interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not super good in the air, but I'm definitely learning how to be better in the air. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's hard to switch into something like motocross when you're, uh, how old I am. <laughs> so right. yeah, we're the um, same age ish. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> late forties, I'm going to say it. I don't care. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's hard to go and learn how to jump a dirt bike when you're, you know, feeling brittle. And, you know, if you see my body right now, it's literally covered in bruises right now from all the crashing that I've done on bikes and such. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. And if I don't know much about your husband, but he's a motocross guy. Is that, is that correct? Like he did that? Yeah. So he used to race pro motocross um, for years and years and years. And I don't know if you know the story about how we met, but yep. he, uh, I was racing an SV650 at Mission Raceway, and he had a CRF 500, I believe, that he, like, total modded up. And um, this thing was fast, like, so fast, but in a straight line fast. And in the corners, it went really slow. And so he was really in the way in a race that we had against each other. <laughs> and I was furious behind him because he would go really fast in a straight line and pull me and then he would suck in the corners and he was in the way. And I was behind him going, look, going, get out of the way. And like, so frustrated <laughs> in this race. And so partway through the race, I tried to take an inside line because he would take these stupid supermoto slash dirt bike lines that didn't jive with my lines. And so he would go swing wide and sort of square off the corner. And so he went wide to go square off this corner. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to squeak up the inside and pass him and get past him because he was so annoying. And so he went this way and I went to go up and then he swung in and took out my front wheel. He didn't know I was there. I didn't get by in time. His version of the story is different than mine. <laughs> anyway, he took me out. <laughs> And I crashed and his bike went like this and he kept going and I was furious. I actually like threw my gloves on the ground and I was, you know, so mad. <laughs> and, um, so that's how we met. <laughs> By taking you out. Oh my gosh. That's a heck of a story. I'd be curious to hear his side of things, but I'm going to go with yours. I'll yeah. go with yours. Oh yeah. For real. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So I see a lot of pictures of you now and, and videos of doing the mountain biking and, and your kid trying. You're like, hey, I need a break. And he gives you like 10 seconds and then he's gone again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. So mountain biking has become kind of a family thing, it looks like, with you guys. So and, and up in your area, I guess there's a lot of it. Yeah, literally outside of my door. I, I was looking for... Um, more coaching opportunities because I was spending a lot of time in my house working from home, which I don't love. 
Um, and so just randomly this summer, I was like, oh, let's see if I could learn how to coach mountain biking. And so I got my certification and then got accepted as a riding coach. And so now I'm just doing a ton of mountain bike riding, which is different than what I normally do, but mountain biking and moto and off-road riding have a lot more in common, um, than maybe road racing and those. So I'm finding that it's a really good cross training. So I stay fit and healthy and active with the like mountain biking. And then that translates to, um, similar body position and style, et cetera, as, as some of the off-road stuff that I do. Yeah. I think that's a pretty cool little cross training, keeping your body going, you know, at our age, it's pretty important. (laughs) So I know. So, uh, your sister over there, she does a lot of, uh, the dual sports stuff. So how often do you get over, not necessarily with her, but do you do more dual sport moto camping? Or is it just a thing that you do when you go over and visit with her? Or is that just something like maybe you're starting to kind of fall in love with that maybe you can do, you know, with your husband or as the kids get older or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, the problem is that I love everything and I want to do everything. And I have way too many sports and things that I like to do. Um, What's been super cool is my sister never rode. Like for, you know, I've been riding for 23 years and for 23 years I've been bragging about how awesome motorcycles are. And, and she never rode and she has kind of a, 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 quite a bit of a different lifestyle, uh, than I do. I'm always on the go. I'm always traveling and, and she's, um, very content in her beautiful neck of the, the woods. And so we didn't, we didn't have a ton in common for, for many years. Um, when, you know, several years ago, she was looking for a little dirt bike for her son. I found this a uh, little ADCC retro bike. Oh my God. I wanted this so bad. I wish she didn't sell it. It was like the coolest bike. Anyway, we, I took it over to teach my nephew Lyndon how to ride on it, but this thing was like a beast and it was two stroke and it was terrifying. Oh yeah. Um, and, and the kid didn't love it, but summer and I jumped on it we were goofing around and summer was like, oh, I used to know how to ride a dirt bike years ago and she jumped on this thing and started zooming around and she's like motorcycling is so fun and I was like yes yes Summer I know that (laughs) and I left and and somehow she got interested in riding and then they bought like a Honda 100 for their daughter to try to go in the trails and then she started going in the trails and then she was like hey we like this and then her and Kevin started getting into it and next thing you know she had bought a couple little dirt bites. And so I went over to her house and she was like, bring your helmet and boots. And I go over to her place. And all of a sudden she's like, let's go. Eating. And she takes me out her house, down some road and into the foothills. And up we go. And I'm thinking, this is incredible. I can't even ride from my house anywhere. We have to load the bikes and it's this big production. And so, and then I'm riding with my sister, like, how cool is this? And, um, and so then she, you know, she sort of went a little further and, and got herself a road license and then got into dual sport. And so actually my very first, you know, dual sport ride ever was with some, she, she said, come on over. Um, you can ride Kevin's bike. And, 
off I went. We rode on the street and then turned a corner and into the hills. And I was like, the, the, I've never ridden like this on the street and then turned around and gone into the hills. And how cool is this? Um, and so whenever I can, I go over to visit her. Uh, it's a little challenging because I don't have a dual purpose bike. Uh, and of course the ferries and all that is super annoying these days, but, um, now she is usually set up and, you know, I get to be sort of an honorary member in all sorts of fun stuff that she puts on. And what's super cool is like, I call it the circle of awesomeness. (laughs) And I've written an article in motorcycle mojo about it is that my friends from so long ago, Scott and Steph and like some of the people I knew way back when are now hanging out with my sister and learning from her and enjoying time with her and sharing experiences with her that it's not a friendship that I ever thought would take place, but I love it so much to see like, those are my friends hanging out with my sister and then I can go and meet her friends and then we can all be friends together and like the school of awesomeness <laughs> just expands. Um, so it's been super rad. And, and that was actually my first sort of, I I've done moto camping more dirt bike style before, but I've never done an ADV adventure moto camping sort of thing. Um, like we did at the guest get lost, find yourself event. And so that was really eye opening um and fun for me to be introduced to something new by her <laughs> absolutely i think um well first of all the the critters event was amazing I mean, hands down it was just i've been to a few of those and that was by far the best one that i've ever been to um but also you know critter and i have become very very good friends very very quickly and uh it's kind of funny like you watch a live or something and it's like, we're getting them we're like, all right, dude, I love you. Yeah. I love you too, man. Okay. But you know, it's just very, he's family, you know? And, uh, thinking about like when I met you in April, it was also the first time I met critter in person. And, uh, I just kind of invited myself to the Easter giver. I'm like, I'm coming, <laughs> you know? And he's like, I guess you could stay with me. You know, Hey, I guess we can do a live when you get here. So it was, it was awesome. So, I got up there and it's really funny that in the last, you know, six months or whatever it's been, uh, you know, meeting you for the first time, your sister and Kevin and just lumping everybody into the mix nuts, you know, that's up there. Um, Scott and Steph, especially, you know, um, some of my best friends are now Islanders, (laughs) you know, and it's really fun because it just, it it really broadens my, my writing. And like I said earlier, going up there and there's so many women that are writing up there and it's just, it's so much fun. And I'll get comments on Instagram or on YouTube on people that are just like, Oh, you're one of my favorite Canadians. I'm like, um, I'm not, but thank you. You know, I'm actually, you know, I'm an American, but I'm just, I guess I'm up there and hanging out with you folks a lot, you know? And, uh, I just think it's super, super rad, and your sister's just a hilarious human, and she's the best flipper offer I've ever met, and she's really good <laughs> at that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so that, the good the Get Lost was kind of your real first moto camp trip then, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say where, you know, I'm seeing all these, you know, adventure riders coming from different places and, you know, all the, all the gear, 
Yeah. I was, we were loving watching that, all the little um, Instapots and the fancy gear and all the tiny little tents. And, um, you know, it really is a, it, it's a, it's a shoot of, you know, some of the types of riding that I do. And it's fascinating for me to see all the different groups of people um, having participated in multiple different groups along the way. It, it's really neat to see, you know, how do adventure riders different, differ from dirt bike riders or road racers or what's the, what's the commonality? What, what is it about this type of riding that they gravitate to? What is it about this type of riding that they don't like? Um, what crosses over, what doesn't cross over? Like it's, it's really neat for me to explore the intricacies, you know, especially from a, um, a, a skills and techniques, yeah. um, side of things, because I am very focused on the intricacies of how to ride well in multiple different scenarios. Um, you know, I write for adventure bike magazine out of the UK. And so I adapt a lot of my road race and road specific articles for adventure bike riding. That's cool. I didn't know but you did that I one. Don't ton of um ADV experience. So it's nice to take that experience and those um I don't know memories and be able to impart them into my articles a little bit more. Um because it is very ADV focused that that um that magazine and and there's a chance I'll be going to their um ADV festival in June um yeah that I'm would hoping. be awesome I was just reached out by somebody about an ADV fest maybe getting an invite to one of those and I was like you know I'm like really nobody right but yeah I'll be there <laughs> nice be, be kind of neat so now that you know yeah. all the different intricacies of, of all the different writing, I want to tell you or ask you which one is your favorite, but I don't want to put you on the spot like that. So which one's your favorite? <laughs> so, um, you know, that's a really tough question because, you know, I think I think I would have to say like at the heart at the heart of my riding will always be the road racing yeah. track specific speed. Um part of riding I think is what I really gravitate to um for me the 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 main thing I get out of riding is peace yeah. and calm because in my day-to-day -day world and in my busy brain it's very noisy it's constant it does not stop and what I found is that it only stops when I'm riding, but riding at a high level. So even if I'm riding, you know, with friends and it's a social thing and the pace is lower and we're looking at the scenery, like I'm still busy. But when I go on a racetrack and I am going as fast as I can, that is the only time where there is nothing else going on in my world. And some people get it with yoga and meditation and, you know, paddling or whatever they do to get that piece. For me, it's hard to find unless I'm going at a high rate of speed <laughs> because um, then I'm forced to only think about my survival, I guess you could say. Yeah. So that being said, that's 
how I achieve a sense of peace and where probably my heart lies the most and where I'm the most comfortable and secure in my so-called expertise. That being said, there's nothing I like more than being in a social motorcycle riding environment, whether that is, you know, ADV camping or hanging out motocross riding or, you know, dirt bike camping somewhere. Motorcycles, rad people, nature, exploring, moving, travel. Those are the things that, that fill my bucket. Um, and you can get, and you can get that with various different types of riding. It's less about the type of riding. Like I'll tell anyone, I don't give a shit what bike I'm riding. Just stick me on a bike and I will ride whatever you're riding, wherever you're riding and still have fun on it. Um, no, I think that's, that's awesome. And and you just, you hit it like filling your bucket. Right. So, I mean, everybody has a different part of riding that they like. Right. I mean, so, I mean, you come from the tracks and the high rate of speed, you know, and, and that's your kind of Zen where this is the only thing I'm focused on. And that's the time you find your quiet place. Right. For me, it's when I'm doing adventure riding in the woods, you know, when I hit the gravel travel and rather it's a high rate of speed or it's not, that is the, just the place where I just get hyper-focused. And I, I find myself laughing inside my own head about my squirrel moments because I'll be riding down there. And that's kind of a time when I kind of am able to process some things, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever's going on in life and stuff. And just when I get out there and you're just kind of zoned and you're, you're hyper-focused, but you're just, your mind is allowed to, your mind is allowed to think, right? You're not judging everything inside your head. So I get down there and I'll be like, okay, so if I do A, the B is really good. Oh my God, look at the trees over there. Look how big those are. This is real. Look at that scenery. Okay, but if I do, you know, so my mind is still going, but it's also still, that's my Zen place. You know, and I don't think people take enough time in their busy lives to find whatever their zen is, whatever hobby it is. And ours is obviously on two wheels, but I think it's very important for us to get out there and get our mind right, if you will, in in whatever form. You know, you're probably over 100 miles an hour and I'm probably 50. I don't know, something like that. So and then with you saying, you know, you've been behind me a couple of times riding. And I'm just thinking to myself as you're talking, I'm like, oh, my God, what is in her head? Oh, my God, this guy's doing this wrong, and he's doing that wrong, and his hands are here, and he's doing this. And why are you standing up right down? Sit down. <laughs> I think that's what's good for me about going adventure riding and dirt bike riding is that I don't wear my coach hat. And, and, and that's hard. It's hard to get out of wearing the coach hat yeah. when I see things that I'm so used to picking apart. But when I go on these adventure rides or into the forest or the dirt, it's less about helping everybody else and more about just being part of part of the ride. So don't worry, I'm not <laughs> looking at how you're. <laughs> well, next time I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. Now I'll be like, oh, what am I doing wrong, Misty? Help me out here, you know? Because I'm sure we're gonna be riding together somewhere in the next few months, somewhere along the way. I don't know. Probably again in April. I'm sure. And I mean, anyway, like I really love when people do ask and, you know, I really love being able to coach. I mean, I think, you know, I think everybody saw um, the moments of when I was teaching um, Brittany at 
Critter's event, you know, she, she was there as a photographer. Yeah. Um, she had all her brand new gear in the car, but she'd never learned to ride. And she was sort of, you know, feeling a little bit left out that she didn't know how to ride yet, but she was stoked on her upcoming you know, lessons. And I said, well, when are your lessons? And she said, well, I couldn't get in until November. And I was like, grab your stuff. I'll teach you. And she was such a willing student, but I'm, I think that everybody in the, in the area could tell that like, like, I just like to do it because it lights me up because I feel, I feel, um, so proud of being able to impart what I know and have learned to someone else to see them get the joy out of it. And I mean, what a cool experience. I taught this poor girl who is, you know, shorter than I am on a bike that was too tall in a scenario that wasn't perfect in front of all these people yeah. <laughs> and in the, you know, less and to run beside her and see her ride a motorcycle for the first time in that event was like one of the <laughs> most special moments. And, and the response I got was, People saying we could see how you light up. We oh, hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's it. It's what fuels me, you know, right. to be able to take that. So, you know, I, I'm able to step back and just enjoy the ride on a lot of scenarios. But if I ever see someone that is struggling or wants my assistance and help, absolutely, I will, hundred percent, be keen to to do that. But sometimes you have to hold me back because I'm like, it's not okay to just randomly go up to some dude at the at the dirt bike track and tell him how to coach his kid right i'm all like excuse uh oh excuse me could you can i oh oh for real sometimes you just want to be out there and you just want to be the dad you know or the parent and you don't want to do the coaching thing but sometimes you're like oh boy okay i do remember that time you went out and you definitely were lit up quite a bit when when you were over there i didn't know what was going on at first um what brought my attention to it was kind of a funny story. There was, I'm not going to say any names, um, Matt. Um, <laughs> he, he said something. I don't know if he coaches or teaches or something, but he looked at you coaching over there, and he, he said something about why are you doing it this way and not this way. And he was like, I have to go say something. And your sister, I cannot – because YouTube will probably end up like taking this episode down if I said what she said, but it was freaking hilarious. She was just like, Oh yeah, let's go tell the professional writer, the professional instructor how to do her job, you know, but there was some very well-placed profanities within that, you know, it was hilarious. And that's when my attention was like, what is going on right now? You know? And then I saw you over yeah. there and then you guys went zipping by and then, coming back and stuff. I thought it was pretty rad. And I don't know if you follow Brittany um, on the old socials, but I think, I think she just had her course like a week or two, three ago or something. I don't know. So hopefully she's out riding. Yeah. Maybe she'll, we'll have to... maybe she won't be the photographer next year. Maybe she'll be out there as, you know, one of the writers. So we'll see we'll see i'm happy to get everybody everybody out riding oh for sure you know it's there's so much interesting things about you and like i'm still watching the clicker and i'm just like there is so much more so i'm just gonna have to say this like you're gonna have to come back on eventually you know you'll have okay. to come back I'm so 
I was kind of laughing because when you gave me a couple of these, like you gave me two, right? And um, so if you're watching this on YouTube, you can actually see that I'm holding up a Motorcycle Mojo magazine. If you're on Spotify right now, you're not watching this. So she give, uh, gave me a couple magazines uh, to come home and just kind of check out. And I was wondering, like, does she just carry a stack of these with her everywhere she goes? <laughs> You know, I was like, how did I get two of these or something? I I don't know. I just remember I put them in my uh, inside my jacket and zipped up and just phew, cruised home and then had to repack at some point and put them in my bags. And I think it's pretty cool. So <clears throat> obviously we've touched on a few times. You've talked about you've you've written for obviously Motorcycle Mojo and then maybe a more adventure based magazine in the UK. Um how in the world did you come about to do all of that, you know, start writing and doing things like that? Um, yeah, super, super accidental, kind of like the story of my life in writing in general. But when I was doing the business part of things and um, working to thank my sponsors and keep people apprised of what I was doing, I would write race reports after each race weekend on, you know, the highlights and how the race went and the story of how I got there and my results, et cetera, and always thanking the sponsors and stuff. And um, it started with, you know, a small local magazine reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we, we, we've been following with your race reports. We really like your style of writing. There's not a lot of women in the industry that do this. Would you like to do some test rides? bikes and I was like oh yeah so I started doing some test rides locally where you know hey can you ride this mule can you write about it and you know it was like Misty says and then a guy says you know his version and we would have a different um, take on the bikes and it was really interesting perspective and really appreciated from a lot of the industry because they didn't have a lot of women journalists writing about bikes and and riding skills and and we come from a different perspective right like i am not very tall i'm five foot three and i don't touch the ground on most bikes so when men are riding about bikes they don't talk about things like that the reach the this how it fits how you sit on it what's hard what's heavy you know there's just a different perspective and so right. it it came across you know people were were enjoying it um you know i remember my first i got approached by sport bike magazine and they flew me down to California to test ride a whole bunch of bikes. And there was all these TV cameras and, and photography set up. And I paid so much money to do these, these test rides back then. And I was like, this is believable. Like I'm living in a fairyland. Um, since then I don't make that much money writing, but, um, I've kept up, you know, so I started writing for Mojo after they interviewed me actually on my racing. Then they were like, hey, why don't you give a shot at writing a column? And then they liked it. And I've been doing a column since 2007, I think, monthly column. Wow. Okay. Um, I freelance for a couple other magazines. I've, I've been in road racing world a bunch. Um, I've been in... Uh, you know, like I said, Sport Bike Magazine, Motorcyclist has done a couple of my um, trips. I went to Spain. I went to Germany. Um, and they printed some of my 
work. I went to Nepal as part of a charity ride and wrote about that in a couple magazines. And I'm just branching out a little bit more in career wise so that it's not as motorcycle focused. And I just actually landed my biggest and most exciting. Um, it's like a four page spread in the magazine called wired for adventure. And it was non motor motorcycle related. So I love telling stories. I love taking the adventures that I'm privileged to get to go on and translating those into stories that, you know, showcase the area that I went to, the experience, the people, um, the event. And it's sort of my way of being able to give back, especially for things like charity rides. You know, yeah. I surprised Critter um, with a column about him when he first, after I met him, um, you know, I'm always looking for stories to write about. And Summer was the one that said, you should do a story on Critter and his experience with mental health challenges and how motorcycling has uh, influenced that. And I was like, absolutely, let's do that. And then she said, can you do it quick? Because he's going to announce this event. And I was like, perfect. Let's keep it quiet. I'll write about it. Give me all the details about the event, publish it. And he won't know <laughs> as long as he won't kill me. <laughs> right. And, and then I was able to go and research on, you know, his experience and his story. And I, yeah. I took my perspective of meeting him and what I could read about his story that he shared. And I wrote a column that he didn't know was coming out. And so the magazine arrived and Summer was like, hey, did you read the latest issue? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's here. It's yeah, I got to check it out. And she's like, you should check it out. And he's like, I'm gonna, I will, I will. And she's like, you should check it out now. <laughs> and then he realized he was in the magazine. And so it's, it's fun for me to be able to use my platform to share other people's stories because I meet super fascinating people along the way that deserve to have their story told. And now I have a way of doing that. So I really love having a method of saying, I can take that cool information and share it with a big audience um, because I, I have that ability to, you know, to write for these magazines, which is awesome. I think that's uh, very phenomenal, especially with, uh, with his story and the impact it's had on so many people you know, uh, firsthand right here, this guy. Um, and then I know <clears throat> I said this before on, on our live last time we had, but you know, that event, I said something to him on the, on the likes of like, do you think this event is like really helping somebody like, I didn't word it that way. I forget how I worded it, but it was basically, did this, do you think this event is going to be helping people? And he just looked at me and goes, it's helping two right now that are here, you know? And I was just like, Phew. Man, that's his story, his passion and everything, his advocacy for men's mental health is just, it's amazing. And then you writing a story about it hopefully brings more people up because it's so important, you know. Man, we're just like, push it down, dude, you're fine, whatever, you know. Suck it up, man mm -hmm. up, right? So I think it's pretty radtastic that you did that. And I haven't read that article yet. I knew he was in, in one, so I'm going to have to... uh I'm going to have to find it. It was at the event. It was hanging up on the wall. Um, 
And I'm going to write a follow-up with about the event. Um, nice. the, the, the trick is that while I love writing and storytelling, it is, um, it's not the easiest career to be in because right. it's all very creative work that requires a certain amount of focus. <laughs> that word that I struggle with a lot. <laughs> that one um, F word. <laughs> Is really difficult because I'll be like, and then I'm like, this and that, go ride, go do something else. Um, but also each event that I go to, each experience that I have, each person that I run into, like I take a very, um, I don't know, strong emotional connection and I really give myself to that experience. And so the, the whole moto camp out event that we went to, like, you know, I gave myself completely to that experience, you know, off grid, not talking to my family, um, you know, being right integrated with all the people, trying to meet everyone, trying to experience from a different perspective, right? Trying to put myself in a situation where I'm, I'm not the center of attention, right? Like I like yeah. to roll, rule the roost, but but coming in and being an observer on this event, because it's not, you know, I'm not meant to be the person. This this was so fascinating for me to stand back and observe my sister in this incredible role in supporting, you know, Critter and, and how Kevin supported her and how you guys all come together to to make this event. And so my role is an observer to to document and catalog all of them. But, but what it does is it's tricky to convey those types of emotions in words a lot of times. Yeah. And so I'll sit down after an event that's heavy, right? Like there, there's a heaviness to that event because of the subject, because of what we know goes on behind the scenes for, for people battling mental health issues. And you're bringing it to light but in a fun environment, like underneath it's heavy <laughs> and we ride motorcycles and someone got hurt and, yeah. you know, like all of these things are going on. How do I, how do I take all of the emotions that occurred and put them into paper in a way that's respectful to everybody involved? It's, it's a daunting task. And I take, I take a great deal of pride in spending the energy needed, but it's also very frustrating at times because I can't get it out. Um, so even now I'm like, it's been, it's been this many months. How do I, how do I go back? How do I get those feelings? But I need those months to absorb all of the feelings that came along with it. And now I'm seeing the, the pro photos and I'm getting the angles and I'm sort of picking up on the vibes on how am I going to piece this story together that really epitomizes what this is all about. Um, yeah. And that's the challenge of every event that I do, right? Like if I go on a, a, like a tour, how do I, how do I explain what it's like to ride through the streets of Nepal to someone that has never been or will never go? It's, it's a challenge and it's, um, yeah, it's fun to do. But yeah, <laughs> so. I think, 
I think trying to put a story together and and convey the convey the the feeling is so difficult to do. And like I'm working on what is this my well technically it'd be my fourth video, but the third real video about this event. And it's really hard to put together because there's moments that I don't think video or words in a story are going to be able to actually convey, you know, and, and express the actual emotion and feeling, you know, I think the fires every night, just sitting around the fires and all the different conversations going on. And then she's, I think you and I had a conversation for like an hour sitting next to each other, just whatever for a while. That was my toque night, by the way. That's when I learned what a toque was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know, tukes handy yeah yeah uh yeah we just call them beanies down here but i'm calling them tukes from now on absolutely but it's just uh you know sometimes i'm trying to put a video together and i'm just like it's just uh it's just turned into a vlog it's not you, you can't catch that actual feeling you know and i did i did a story first just based on my experience of my my struggles and stuff and then I did that one first and now I'm trying just to do just the vlogs of it and it's just like right now I'm just like I'm trying to end one of the episodes and I'm just like I'm not feeling what I want to feel when I watch this video because it's hard to translate actual emotion and feelings that you were feeling inside while we're there into a video you can do some voiceovers or something but i'm just i'm struggling that's a creative part for me where i just sit there i'm like oh squirrel you know and i'll watch it and i'll watch it and i'll watch it and i'll try this and i'll do that and i'll edit this and i'll add this sound or this graphic and whatever and i'm just like i don't know man i gotta walk away for a while so that's what i had to do yesterday i was just done (laughs) i gotta walk away for a minute so i think that's part of the the creative process, right? Like yeah. when you when you have something as heavy as like, how am I going to convey this two week long magical trip that I'm doing in some different yeah. part of the world? How do I how where do I even start? You know, over the years I've been sort of stressed out. Like, should I be taking more notes? Should I be like, what's my process here? And and what I've found really is that if I take notes the focus is less on the now and the experience. But if I allow it to just arrive, usually I'm whacked on the head (laughs) by the thing that is the essence of the story. So a a good example of that was I went to um, on a, on a tour called Leo escapes where they do motorcycle tour. And then we end up at a track day or series of track days. So it's tour and track time. So you get to ride on the road, which is great. And then you get to go to a racetrack and speed your way through. Sometimes with Troy Courser as the uh, racing school Europe coach or whatever, perfect for someone like me, tour and track time. And so we went, we flew into Munich and then we rode into the Italian Alps and we were based at this beautiful little um, cabin hotel castle villa set in the middle of the Alps. And we did little um, tours each day from there. And on day two or three, I was really struggling to, to capture the essence. How am I going to tell this story? What am I going to say? What's 
What's the theme? What is my focus? And we were celebrating in the evening that night. Um, we had been joking with the waitresses. Uh, me and my girlfriend asked to borrow this lady's clothes. And we went and put on like the, the dresses and the lederhosen. <laughs> and we came down and surprised everybody in the, in the lobby dressed as like full on German, Italian ladies. And, and we were joking around and there was, you know, drinks flowing, etc. And this man walks into the bar. And he looks around and he sees us all and he pulls up and he stands beside me and he's like, who are you guys? And I was like, oh, we're, you know, I'm Misty. I'm from Canada. We're with this tour and, and we're riding motorcycles and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, yeah, but, but what are you doing here? Only locals come here. I have never seen anyone from Canada or Australia or the United States here. And I was like, that's that's the whole point. Yeah. That's the point. And I was like, excuse me, can I borrow a pen? And I was like, oh. and this guy came in and he said, what are you doing here? And locals don't, or, you know, only locals come here. And I was like, that's the essence of this story. And then it just like exploded out from me based on what he had said. He was flabbergasted that there was Canadians and Australians and Americans in his neck of the woods riding motorcycles um and and i've found that like with each of the places that i go there'll be a a, a starting line there'll be something that i put on the page and i go how do we how do we fill in the gaps there so i have a starting point for critters based on a quote that carl said oh yeah when you read the You'll, you'll figure it out. I'm not going to give it away because I don't know where it's going to go, but I have a line. I have the one line. It's going to propel it, but I just have to get there. <laughs> Carl is gold. He will say something. And you're just like, yep, yep, that's right. I I have him in a video. Uh, I was just watching something. I can't remember if it's already up or whatever, but he was, we were talking about, Oh, I was kind of walking around. We were at a Telegraph Cove, and I was just kind of telling – we all went on this big ride, and I was just going around, and I was just like, what What was your highlight of the day, right? Because we, we went by some lakes. We went in, we rode into a cave, you know, and now we're here at this giant tourist place, essentially, walking down this boardwalk just after lunch. And everybody is, like, really deep in their in, in, in their answer. You know, and I go up to Carl. I'm like, Carl, what was your best thing? Ride my motorcycle. <laughs> I was just like, yes. I mean, yes. perfect. Everybody's like, oh, you know, just this real essence of riding here and here. And he was like, riding my motorcycle. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's just what the dude is. Yeah. To be inspiration. There's inspiration all around. Yeah. You just have to tap into it. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking at 246 right now, and it's just like, I know, it's like, I want to know more about Germany, I want to know more about uh, Nepal, I want to know more, (laughs) you know, and there's, I'm just going to have to say right now, you got to come back, you know, because we have probably another couple hours of just these stories, but one of the things that when we first met, um, that I was really taken back by where I figured out, wow, this lady is really a woman of adventure. 
you know, you were talking about a trip you took with your daughter. And I can't remember some Scandinavian country, Finland, Norway, something like that. And yeah, well, there you go. Uh, I remember you were saying something about like an icebreaker cruise. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's cool. And in my mind, you know, I, I've been on cruises, so I'm thinking like the Port of Miami, everybody's walking on these boats and everything, you know. I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool, tour boat, going to go do an icebreaker thing. But you were like, yeah, we took a dog sled there. I was like, what? I was just like, this is probably the raddest thing I've ever heard. So I have, you, you got to tell at least a little bit of that story on this episode and then we can do more mm-hmm. of the next one. But I was just like, a dog sled, freaking rad. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> yes, mostly true. You're blending two elements together. Okay. There was okay. a dog sled day and there was an icebreaker cruise day. They weren't exactly the same day, but they happened very close together. Okay. So basically you know, my daughter, she's just turned 12. She was 11 at the time. Over the years, I have, you know, I, I take great pride in being a mom and, and raising kids. It's not without its struggles. And a lot of the focus has been on assisting my son over these years. There's There's been a lot of attention needed. And sometimes I felt like I had a bit more or a stronger relationship or more energy was going towards my son. Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit concerned that the mom and daughter relationship was, was waning a little. And especially at this age, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted, I want close. And so I basically said to each of the kids, if you could go on a trip with just me anywhere in the world, not, not that I'm 100% going to be able to do this, but what would it be? I was curious. And so my kids are very different. And my son said he wanted to go to Whistler, which is like an hour away. It's right there. Anywhere in the world, Whistler or Russia. And I was like, we're not going to Russia right now. Thank you very much. But yeah. um, maybe one day. And then I said to my daughter, where would she like to go? And without skipping a beat, she said, Finland. And she wanted to go to Finland. She likes the Finnish dog, the little Lapin. And she'd heard about the igloos um, where you could see the the Northern Lights. So we started researching and looking up stuff that she wanted to do. And I started looking up trips. Now, not being one to just be able to do a simple trip, like go to Finland and come back like normal people would probably do. um, I was like, Okay, well, we can't fly directly to Finland because you have to go through another European country. So I said, which, where would she like to go? She said, Paris. So I was like, okay, we're going to go to Paris and then we'll go to Finland. But, you know, looking at the map, like Finland is really close to Sweden and it's also really close to Denmark. And my mom is Danish and I've never been. And I was like, we should go to Denmark too. So then I made this huge convoluted trip, which basically went Paris. Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and then we just happened to tag along a quick jaunt over to Estonia because why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> so while I was making this whole tour and plan for her, I was typing in adventurous things to do in Finland. And I came across this icebreaker cruise, which basically offers a, a bus comes and picks you up in this little area in the, the Santa Claus village in, in uh, Rovnemedy, Finland, where we were staying. It's a 
hour, two, two hour bus ride, you cross into Sweden, you go to this beautiful port, you get on this giant icebreaker, and you literally crush through the ice out in the, the Bothnian Sea, <laughs> out for about an hour, crushing ice the whole way. It was unbelievable. And then it stops in the ice. You get to get off. You get to walk around the ice, hang out. And then you get to go and put survival suits on and jump into the water at the back of the boat that they've hollowed out for you to do in a full-on survival suit. So we did that. And then she got some special treatment because everybody liked her. And we got to go to the captain's seat. And she got We got to sit in the top and we got all this wow. special treatment. The guy let us, when everybody else got back on the boat, he let us go around to the very front of the boat in the ice and touch it, whereas nobody else was allowed to do that. So we have this super rad picture of us pretending that we're pushing, like stopping the boat in the ice. That's cool. I'll send it to you. Yeah. So rad. And then, and then we went back into Finland and we could have done you know, the touristy dog sledding, but I didn't want to do that. So we took a two or three hour bus to the very, very, very Northern tip of Finland to where there's like three people that live there. And we went to this complete um, wilderness resort and did an epic dog sled tour through the blizzard and snow. And it was very authentic and insane. And then the next day we did snowmobiling and um, we had an adventure. But that kid, she got dragged along. It was 18 days and we did nine flights, five countries, um, 18 days. She was whooped. And a trip of a lifetime, it sounds like. What did she think about jumping in the water with the survival suit on? She thought it was cool. She was stoked. And then we swam and we were like hugging chunks of ice. And um, yeah, I have videos. I like my YouTube channel and I got, I got videos that I need to put up yeah. trying to grow my YouTube channel. I'm going to put a video of her um, and us jumping in and doing our trip because it was pretty astounding. I think that's and very valuable to the mom and daughter relationship and um, to imparting a sense of adventure, travel, appreciation, culture, awareness, all the things that travel teaches a young child. Right. Um, is so important. So I'm a huge proponent of travel. I think um, and I'm lucky that I can make my job. My job is travel, adventure, riding. Right. Yeah. What, what, what a phenomenal, like, I just remember, I, I did blend those two stories together, but I just remember when you were telling me about some of this stuff, I was just like, holy crap, this, this lady is freaking full on adventure. I think it's it's fantastic. And you just hit the perfect segue because you and I chit-chatted, I don't know, a month or two months ago or something, and you were talking about um, wanting to grow your YouTube channel, getting back onto that. Uh, <clears throat> I keep putting up on the screen. I'll do it again right here, but this right here. You know, you got a, a, a website coming up, uh, missyhurst.com, which is under construction. Uh, building your YouTube, like we already said. So what are some of the things you – we can look forward to seeing on your YouTube channel coming up because you want to get like everybody, you know, we want to, we want to get our hours in. We want to be the monetized. We want to, 
you know, generate a little bit of, of the income off of that, especially for you, because you, you've talked about your entrepreneur and like, this is what we're doing and a couple other things on the side, but this is kind of your main focus. So what, uh, what are some of the things that we can kind of look forward to here in the near future on the, the Misty Hearst socials? Um, I think mainly the message I want to put out and what I want to be is, is just very real. I want to be myself and I want to be a resource for parents and moms, especially who want to maintain their own lives, their own careers, their own dreams, their own ambitions, while still having a huge focus on being an incredible mom. And, and also how to bring your kids into, you know, the, the sport of motorcycle riding or, or being involved with it, right? I get questions all the time. How did you make, how did you, how did you keep, you know, traveling? How do you keep journal, like being a journalist? How do you bring your kids to track days? I mean, I have stories of driving by myself four hours with two toddlers in the car and literally they stayed at the track all day and it was 38 degrees and I rode because I was doing a story and mom wanted to ride on the track and in between I would get off the bike and I would run over and the kids had to sit in the car with the air conditioning on because it was so hot and I was playing movies and then we would take a break and I would play with them and then we would get ice cream and then you know you're you're not only riding on the track, but then you're momming on the side. And, and a lot of people were interested in, in how did I manage, how did I manage to do that? Um, you know, and, and then with my expertise in, in all my coaching, I have a lot of content on, you know, how to become a better rider, how to teach kids. How do you know if your kids are ready to ride? Um, how do you adapt this program for super tiny kids? Um, what skills translate, how to, how to improve your riding, your visuals, all of those types of things. So, so I think I'm going to start sharing, you know, videos of, of the tracks that I've ridden around the world, yeah. uh, snippets of, of places I've been, trips I've gone on, um, you know, tips on how to, how to teach kids and, and link back to, you know, mistyhurst.com where I'm going to have the blog of, of, the previous articles and new articles that are always coming out, um, you know, so that we can take stuff that's been written in the past and present it in a new format that's available um, for people to, to learn of it. And, and basically I, I don't want it to be too polished. I just want it to be like, Hey, just ride along with me on what I do and how I raise my kids. And if you like it, you like it. Awesome. Um, you know, and hopefully you can learn something and reach out. And if you have any questions, like I love answering questions. So there you go. Yeah, no, I think I'll put this up again real quick, but I think, uh, I think you're really onto something here because <clears throat> I've seemed to have gotten on your IG, I don't know, a little while ago, I think probably right around the time we went up in what, September up to your neck of the woods. And then I got on there again, like I said, doing some show prep for this. 
And I was totally stalking your socials. And it seems like your Instagram kind of blown up a little bit lately. seems like you have a lot of followers on there. From I don't remember what it was, but I looked today and I was like, whoa, that's definitely some growth right there. You know, so hopefully yeah. uh, the YouTube is doing something, the Misty Hearst at YouTube. So like, subscribe, share to her right there. You know, you got to do it, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, follow her, what, Misty Hearst Racing on the Instagrams, uh, Misty Hearst on the YouTubers, and then it's Misty Hearst Racing on the Facebooks too, right? So it's all yeah. right there. If you're watching it on YouTube, it's on the ticker tape, and if not, I just... I read it for you so you can go find it if you're on Spotify, but um, it's probably a good time to, to hit because we are literally 10 seconds away from hitting the three hour mark. It's insane. I cannot believe. And look at me. I stayed put. I got all my little fidgets. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and I stayed put for three hours. That's unbelievable. I know. Right. So Missy, I really appreciate you coming on here. Like more than I can say, you know, I, I think, um, this whole thing, I'm just trying to get it off the ground and, and having people like yourself that are somebody that we can look up to as role models and are just very interesting people um, is is worth telling everybody's everybody's stories and everybody's history and everything. And like I've said, I there's so much more about you that I want to know. And, you know, a few months down the road or something, I'd love to have you back on. We can see how the YouTube's doing you know, how everything else is going, but definitely I want to hear about some more of your trips, especially the Nepal one. I think that would be super rad. So anything you want to say, and anything might, you want to plug? I might have a new trip coming up that oh, I can yeah. tell you all. About I don't, I've, I've got an announcement that's going to be made here shortly and I'm just dying to talk about it, but I just, I can't yet. I'm just like, oh, dang it. So I know. So, we're going to go ahead and just end things here. So thanks for listening. And uh, until next time, eat more pancakes. <laughs> <laughs>